Hey, everyone. So this is going to be a bit different, uh, this podcast you're listening to. Normally, I interview a, a guest or two, and we have a one-on-one conversation. But I have started to host conversations in Clubhouse, and that is an audio-only chat platform that allows groups of people to uh, join the conversation. And so I held the conversation with John Shell of Social Capital Partners and Delilah Rothenberg of the Pre-Distribution Initiative. You may recognize John from episode 25, where we chatted about their work in employee ownership. And Delilah will be in episode 27, which may or may not be published by the time you hear this. Uh, But Delilah and John are both working on tackling wealth inequality in different ways. And I wanted to get them together because I thought we'd have a really interesting discussion. And I'm so glad we did. It like (laughs) basically lived up to the what I had built up in my mind and what I the best version I hoped it could be. And that's what you're getting in this. Um, but it is a. It starts with 20, 30 minutes of me talking to to John and Delilah about their work, and then really dives into the ways in which wealth inequality is happening that people are not talking enough about. And we open that up to others who are in the room to join the conversation. And so we have some really interesting guests join that conversation, some surprise appearances from folks who are doing also doing amazing work in impact investing who, who joined in on that conversation. And I think you'll really enjoy this. I did. And if you can't listen to the whole thing, stay for part of it. The first hour, hour and a half is pure gold. So I hope you enjoy this. I'd love to hear your feedback. If you are enjoying these conversations, A, get on Clubhouse. Uh, if you need an invite, let me know. I can uh, obviously I can find one for you and get you on board. Unfortunately, it's only available on iOS right now. They are working furiously on an Android version, but it's probably a few months away still. And B, just let me know if you like these conversations and you want more of them shared through this podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. I'll give a very brief intro to Delilah and John, then I'm going to let them talk a lot more about them themselves. Uh, but Delilah is founder and executive director of the Pre-Distribution Initiative. Um, and so this is a, like a multi-stakeholder effort um, aiming to improve investment structures so that they share more wealth and influence with workers and communities, provide stronger incentives uh, to invest responsibly, and ultimately address uh, the systemic risks, um, which include in income inequality and, and climate change. Um, and John is uh, a managing director and partner at Social Capital Partners. It's a nonprofit organization based in Toronto, uh, where I'm from. Uh, and they are dedicated to scaling market-based solutions that, that address wealth inequality. And what sort of stands out to me about Social Capital Partners is they really have a fanatic uh, focus um on impact and doing it at a scale. And the organization, the very first episode of my podcast is with the founder, um, Bill Young, who talks about these sort of four and four or five, John can correct me on the exact number, but four or five massive pivots that the organization's taken in, in its quest to um, address uh, you know, inequality. And um, just they've been 
so invested in a particular way. And if it doesn't, you know, they've done lots of great things and it's had lots of great impact, but if it isn't at the scale that they need or want it to be, their willingness to sort of abandon, you know, take the lessons from that, those approaches and then pivot is really remarkable because it's easier to say than actually do after you've invested so much time and energy into an approach. So I'm, I'm really um, in awe of their ability to do that. So um, the other thing I'll just say before we uh, get started and introduce the guests is I'm going to try to spend the first 20 minutes maybe um, just setting the stage. Um, I am recording the the session today. It was in the in the description. Uh, so hopefully everybody's comfortable with that um, so that I can share it through the podcast for those who can't be in the room here. I think this is a really important discussion. Uh, and it's just unfortunately just limited to obviously still iOS users. Um, but I want to include everybody into the conversation. So please hold your questions. I want you to be involved. And when I open up this, the stage, I'd love for you to, to come in and join the conversation. If you do join the conversation and for any reason you feel afterwards that you're really uncomfortable with something you've said being shared through the podcast, please get in touch with me. My DMs are open and um, I can remove it in post-production. So uh, last thing I might just say is, please, if there's anybody else you think might want to join the conversation, please um, ping them into the room. I, I think this is really going to be a great conversation. I'm quite excited. So with that, um, maybe we'll start with uh, Delilah. Do you want to unmute and maybe just tell everybody a little bit more about the pre-distribution initiative and, and maybe a little bit about your journey? Sure. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, Elise. Um, and great to see or hear you, John. Um, this is my first Clubhouse event or discussion. So um, I, uh, I look forward to the conversation and hope I have proper etiquette. Um, Welcome. Too, That's I, so exciting. Am I, am, I allowed, am I allowed to unmute and say me too? Yes. Definitely. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. I saw your your tweet and um, your social media posts about it, John, and I was like, I feel the same way. Um, so, uh, so I guess, um, Dave, you did a great job introducing the pre-distribution initiative. It's really a mouthful. So, um, uh, kudos to you for that. Um, the background of the pre-distribution initiative really goes back to when I was a teenager, and I'm going to try to abbreviate the story um, so that we can really get into the meat of the discussion here. But basically, I was an uh, environmental and social activist as a teenager. I was very skeptical of capitalism, but when I went to college and um, triple majored in history, politics, and African studies, I was studying uh, systems of hegemony and post-colonialism and neocolonialism. And um, ended up uh, in courses, a few courses um, that uh, focused on trade versus aid. Um, I, I, in particular, I studied with Bill Easterly, who was one of the first proponents of trade versus aid. Um, and I spent some time in Tanzania volunteering and realized that um, instead of um, post-colonial uh, countries being dependent on aid, uh, whether governmental or non-governmental, uh, it would be better, and, and I came to this conclusion through discussions with local people, 
um, and hearing what they wanted, I, I figured it would be better to figure out how to attract capital to these underserved areas of the world so that they could um, grow their own small, medium-sized enterprises, not be dependent on multinational corporations for jobs and markets, not be dependent on international aid. And so when I was graduating from college, I uh, crashed an NYU Stern career fair. I went to NYU, but not Stern. I pulled my dreadlocks back in a ponytail and tried to look professional, and I got a job in finance. Um, I didn't know anything about finance at the time, but I figured, you know, I'm going to try to convince these investors to invest in these small, medium-sized businesses that I saw in Africa. Um, I was in public equities in sell-side uh, um, research for the first research and sales for the first um, four years of my career. I was at Bear Stearns during the financial crisis in 08. And at that time, I realized that I didn't want to be in public equities. And I was very focused on U.S. markets as well. Um, so I was able to make the switch through the relationships and knowledge that I had developed early in my career to private equity. And I started to focus on private equity in Africa. Um, and because the investors uh, at the time were largely development finance institutions, they were more advanced than other investors at the time in terms of environmental and social standards that were required. So while I initially was focused on capital raising and managing financial models and pitch decks, my works uh, very quickly um, started to focus on making sure that the investments were aligned with um, the International Finance Corporation um, environmental and social performance standards for sustainability um, uh, and uh, environmental health and safety guidelines and um, equator principles. And so uh, that work continued. I ended up in um, also focusing on on developed markets over the years. And I realized that um, there were some aspects of private equity and developed markets that um, really undermined some of the positive impacts that we were accomplishing at the portfolio company level. So I was looking particularly at wealth and income inequality in the United States around you know, 2017, um, 2016, 2017, and thinking, okay, well, we can pay the workers in our portfolio companies a living wage. We can help them build wealth by earning some, you know, shares of the company that they work for, um, or some exposure to the equity. Um, but uh, we and we can narrow executive to average worker compensation ratios in the portfolio companies. But as long as fund managers, and I wasn't working with a mega fund manager at the time, but I was looking at my at our peers. Um, at some of the really big fund managers out there, and they're managing tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. And as long as they're charging a 2% annual management fee or roughly that on their assets under management and um, collecting, you know, 20% carried interest or, you know, returns from the investments, then the rate of wealth of the fund manager is going to grow at an exponentially faster rate than workers in or beneficiaries of the portfolio companies. And so I really wanted to do something about fund manager compensation, which seemed to, you know, at the large institutional level, um, be undermining uh, positive impacts and ESG, environmental, social, and governance initiatives at the portfolio company level. And I, I left private equity, um, very good terms with, with my colleagues, um, and ended up getting a fellowship and starting the pre-distribution initiative. And I'll wrap this up really quickly, um, but the last part is... Um, that 
I, I joined up with a few amazing colleagues uh, who I continue to work with now, and we decided that we didn't want to just work with investors on workshopping new investment structures. We weren't just going to work with the asset owners and allocators and the asset managers. We also wanted to talk to um, people who are impacted by these negative practices and hear what they had to say. And we did that. And while they appreciated uh, our focus on fund manager compensation, we also learned from them that there are a whole host of other issues at the investment structure level that are not typically captured by ESG and impact investing frameworks and metrics that they're concerned about, including um, the amount of leverage that's used to acquire portfolio companies or produce dividends from the portfolio companies for investors that can leave companies um, and, you know, their workers vulnerable if there's a slight downturn or rise in interest rates. Um, also, whether funds are domiciled in tax havens, uh, fund manager and lobbying, um, uh, excuse me, um, fund manager lobbying and political spend. Uh, those are things that are captured at the portfolio company level, but not at the fund manager level. So these are all things that, um, you know, we realized that we should be focused on at the pre-distribution initiative. And we're really happy with the response that we've been getting from the market and, and different actors. Nobody's really pushing back on the idea that these aspects of uh, our economy need to be measured and managed. And, and people really get that Building back better, especially in this COVID period, is a two-part equation. It's not just about what's going on at the portfolio company operations level, but it's also about how investments are structured, how investment professionals are incentivized, the valuation methodologies we use. And we can get more into all of that um, you know, further in the discussion, and as well as the um, institutionalization of capital and some of the unintended negative consequences of that in itself. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I'd love to... Un unpack more of that as, as we go. Um, even, you know, on the investment manager compensation side, but as you say, the bigger issue of the institutionalization of capital and the risks that presents, um, that's, that's a really wonderful intro. And I really appreciate the detail you went into in terms of your, your journey, because I think it adds a lot of interesting uh, context. Um, John, let's turn it over to you. And can you do the same? Give a bit of a, a, a description of your journey and, and what you're all working on over at uh, Social Capital Partners. Sure. And um, uh, before I start, uh, thank you, David, for inviting me to this. Um, you know, it's great, Delilah, to be on this call with you. The work you're doing is so important. Um, nobody is doing the work you're doing and, um, you know, talking about the things you're talking about. Very little research has been done in that area, so I hope we do talk more about it on this call because it's so important and becoming more important every day. Um, the feelings mutual. Yeah, well, hey, sure. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, so, so um, uh, you know, and and I and I think you know, our our objective here, I think, as David outlined, is to talk about the things that people don't talk about when it comes to wealth inequality. And I know there's there seems like a lot of people. If I'm if I'm using this app right, there are a lot of people on this call who will have uh, their own examples. And so I hope we get into that and, and, and spend a lot of time just come, you know, talking about the different things that, you know, just so we all, and I, and I, you know, I'm on this uh, to learn because, um, you know, I, there are things that I, that I know and there's like, you know, eons, eons more that I don't know eons and, and more that, that doesn't work, but you know, you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And, and I, so I'll, I'll briefly talk about my background the easiest way to describe it is it's, you know, pretty traditional for a finance person. You know, I, I did an MBA. I worked at McKinsey, which I used to be proud of saying, and now not so much. Um, 
uh, I left that to start a roll up, right? That's the easiest way to say it. I, we, you know, a buddy of mine and I from school, we started buying veterinary practices back in 2006. Um, and, you know, uh, um, uh, we kind of rolled up the vet industry in um, Canada. I moved to Australia in 2013, did a similar thing over there, um, and then came back to Canada in 2000. Sorry, I moved to Australia in 2013, did something over there, over there and came back in 2016. And, you know, in that journey, uh, both the being at McKinsey and kind of seeing how that works and being in the roll-up world and seeing how that works, we sold both of the roll-ups ended up being sold to private equity, um, you know, over the last seven years or so. Um, and, and I just, you know, I... I, I I never went into, I never expected to do a roll up. I never expected to work at McKinsey. All that stuff kind of happened. Um, and I kind of found myself uh, when I came out of the second one saying, you know, w- what has happened here, right? Like, like, what did we do to this industry? How does it look now compared to how I found it? Um, you know, what's all this money I made doing this? Like that wasn't supposed to happen, right? Like when we, when we got into it in 2006, um, we had a whole um, you know, spreadsheet mapped out with an exit, uh, an exit expectation that we, you know, sell for six times cash flow or something. And, and in the period of time we were doing it, private equity got interested and suddenly the exits were 20 times cash flow. What is that? Why? You know, I came back uh, in 2016 and thought, you know, I want to do something different. Uh, the world has uh, massively overcompensated me for the value I've added. Um, I, and, and, and it feels bad or it feels weird anyway. And so, um, out of that sense of kind of guilt and responsibility, I, I, um, connected with Bill Young, who I knew from a project, um, he had supported, you know, kind of a decade before he didn't remember it, but, but it was very meaningful to me. That's kind of Bill. He'll, he'll support all sorts of, of things. And, and, um, you know, Bill had for, you know, 15, 16 years, as David described, um, run as social capital partners, which he founded in 2001, uh, and had been incredibly successful in, um, uh, you know, as David described, trying different things that people hadn't tried before in uh, trying to help people facing barriers to employment, get good full-time job. That, that was, that's the, that was the purpose of social capital partners. How do we help people, uh, facing employment barriers, get good jobs. And, you know, the one that, that, that I think is, is, was the most, uh, you know, I don't say the word famous, but the most well-known was he started loaning money to uh, franchises uh, with, uh, you know, facing barriers to employment. And then their interest rate on his loan would go down by a percentage point for every person they hired. Um, and so, you know, he was kind of early days in social finance, um, thinking through uh, how we can use finance to motivate different behaviors. And it was very successful. I mean, I think he got 500 people jobs through that program who otherwise, you know, were really struggling to, to find work. Um, but that was winding down, um, you know, uh, uh, once when I arrived in, in 2017. Um, you know, uh, Bill said, look, uh, we, he tried to scale it through Canadian banks and using the government to fund it, uh, didn't work for lots of interesting reasons. Um, and he said, well, I don't know what to do next. And I, I had, it's not, um, fashionable to say anymore, but I was influenced by, uh, uh Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. I was very worried about, I was thinking about wealth inequality. I was thinking about the ownership side of wealth inequality. And I said to Bill, look, I, I, you know, let's talk about whether we're approaching this the right way. 
uh, and he and and so we shifted our focus from uh, employment to ownership, and saying, look, as long as um, ownership continues to become to be consolidated, um, there is no path back from wealth inequality. Right? You can't attack wealth inequality with an income only approach, and very few people are thinking about it with an ownership perspective. So how do we become the people who think about it from an ownership perspective? And so we started looking at a whole bunch of things um, uh, within there. And the thing, to cut this story short, the thing we found that we really liked was the ESOP, which is uh, uh, the employee stock ownership plan in the U.S., where owners can transition their company to their employees using uh, uh, this trust that was invented in the U.S., or really by and large only exists in the U.S., um, you know, and, and where the employees don't pay for their shares and, um, you know, they use debt. Um, and it's produced, I mean, like fantastic companies have used this this uh, program, like Publix in, in um, uh, Florida, where 200,000 employees own Publix. And, you know, you have grocery clerks require, uh, retiring with a million dollars in their bank account. I mean, this is, this is how you get different outcomes using ownership. And, you know, we, we are, what we do now is uh, we work with pension funds to try to do really big ESOP deals, right? So, and if we can do that, we think we can catalyze the movement of institutional capital into ESOPs, which doesn't exist today, uh, and therefore get a number of companies who would otherwise sell to private equity selling to their employees instead. Our first deal was, uh, happened um, end of December, where Taylor Guitars, um, which is a, you know the largest acoustic guitar manufacturer in the U.S., with amazing ownership, uh, decided to tra- to sell their company to their employees. So, so Taylor Guitars is now 100% employee owned, and we funded that or we financed that uh, in partnership with um, a pretty big pension fund out of Canada. And so we're we're going to hopefully do more of that um, and try to make that a, a much bigger part of the economy. And that's that's sort of what when we think about scale, that's that's the approach we're taking. So that's that's sort of uh, social capital partners in my journey. And um, uh, yeah, um, uh, looking forward to chatting more about this stuff. That's wonderful. Um, thank you. That's a really great uh, dis- sort of wrap up of, of uh, a long history of, of work that you've done. Um, and and just to clarify, John, like I, you know, in Canada, ESOPs are not commonplace uh, the, for a variety of reasons. Do you know, Globally, outside of the outside of Canada and the U.S., how prevalent they are? Well, the U.K. adopted a version of it in 2014. Um, uh, so there are now 300 odd employee ownership trusts in the U.K. with 30,000 employees. Uh, in the U.S., it's like 6,400 with uh, like 10 million employees. Um, you know, in in Europe, it's it's more common to have a worker like worker co-op structure. Mondragon is a is a good example of that. Uh, than this structure, but the, the specific kind of I'm going to sell my company to employees using debt, um, where every employee gets shares, uh, and that's incredibly important in this in this program. Every employee gets shares, and they get them for no cost, so it's accessible. Um, uh, really, only exists using the ESOP in the US and the EOT in the UK. That's great. Can you also? I don't want to put you on the spot, so if you don't kind of have many figures off the top of your head, no no worries, but. Try to give a, a an idea of like this, this how important employee ownership is in terms of wealth creation. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, uh, so in the U.S., uh, uh, there are 14 million people who are covered by an ESOP plan. Um, uh, you know, about two million of them are in private companies where it's like major, it's mostly majority ESOPs. 
Um, the average account holds one hundred and forty odd thousand dollars. You know, as I say, New Belgium Brewery is is a, is a nice example of this. It's a, 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 you know, a, a beer you might you might have have, uh, have drunk. It's um, uh, they became an ESOP about fifteen years ago. They ended up selling uh, to Kirin, the big Japanese conglomerate, and the employees who were then the owners. You know, many of them had several hundred thousand dollars. Um, uh, you know that they they made out of this. Uh, people would never otherwise have had access to ownership. In Taylor Guitars, we expect to generate tens of millions of dollars for their twelve hundred employees. You know, over the next decade. Um, so you know the, the total the total amount of money in ESOPs in the U.S. is one point four trillion dollars. So I mean, just massive. Um, uh, despite that, though, and 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 a whole bunch of tax advantages have been put behind them. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on the employee ownership stuff, um, but um, you know it is. I mean, from a from an outside observer, a Canadian observer, it seems like one of the only bipartisan topics in the U.S. I mean, Republicans love it and Democrats love it. Uh, it's continually in, enhanced in terms of of the tax benefits of doing an ESOP. Yet still, uh, every year, you know, two hundred odd companies transition to ESOPs. Four thousand companies get sold to private equity. Lots of reasons for that. Um, uh, but you know, that's a gap that we hope to try to close. And just, just to give everybody the kind of direction for where we're headed here, what I'm hoping to do is, is just dive a little further on the, on the leveraged aspect of it. I'm talking about what, um, you know, what's sort of unique and pioneering about what you're doing, um, in terms of, you know, where you're getting pension funds involved and, and then we'll circle back with Delilah. I want to kind of dive a little more into her, um, you know, the institutionalization of capital and then invite people onto the stage. And, and then maybe as we go through here, hope to draw a thread between these things. And, you know, maybe we do, maybe we don't, but at the very least, we'll start to surface, you know, a bunch of, um, a bunch of issues. And we may have some folks join the conversation who have, uh, other angles and, uh, uh, perspectives to add to this conversation. So with that, John, can you, can you talk, just like tease out a little bit further the, the aspect of, you know, bringing pensions into this equation and, and what problem is that solving? Um, so, so the specific uh, um, uh, problem uh, is that if you, if you, when you do a, a um, employee ownership deal, um, you're, you're mostly you're funding that yourself. So if you're an owner, you have a business, you want to do an ESOP, uh, you get as much debt as you can. Um, but uh, the rest of it you'll fund yourself. And right now, the only debt really available to ESOPs are from commercial banks, so J.P. Morgan and um, uh, Wells Fargo, and you know they have the big the big banks generally. But they look at them as regular commercial loans. You compare that to private equity, um, who you know will leverage up through both their own. Uh, uh, you know they, they have access to much more debt. Plus, they'll take on a junior capital through mezzanine debt. Those additional levels of debt aren't usually available to ESOPs, which is part of the reason why there are fewer ESOPs. Um, it doesn't make any sense because ES, uh, all of the research shows that ESOPs uh, default less often, uh, are more resilient during economic downturns, um, you know, in, in, grow faster than uh, tr- uh, um, uh, companies owned otherwise. And so you know, it ought to have a great appeal to uh, people looking to deploy uh, um, you know, debt capital. So, um, and, and they're, you know, you can, you can, uh, they're, they're often great long-term partners. So they're not looking to resell 
the company. For a pension fund, it's perfect, right? Pension fund wants to put their money out. They want to leave it out for a long time. They want it at relatively low risk, and they don't want it. They don't want the churn. So there's a great match between uh, uh, the capital that that pension funds want to deploy and, and the capital that, that ESOPs need. Plus, there's a great value alignment, right? Like the pension fund is is working to. Uh, provide for the retirements of regular employees, you know, and the owners of these ESOPs are looking to provide for their regular employees. Uh, and that played out in the in the Taylor deal, uh, you know, where we were able to offer longer term financing. Um, we were able to fill, um, you know, we were able to provide more financing than, than uh, they otherwise had access to. And so we believe that if pension funds become a reliable source of funding for this particular asset class, um, uh, it will enable many more to make this decision because it, they'll get much more cash up front and the company will have more secure, longer-term, well-priced capital. That's wonderful. Thank you. That, that's very helpful. Delilah, um, let's circle back to the sort of the last thing you were talking about as we um, as we wrapped up with, with you. Can you unpack again this sort of um, institutionalization of capital and some of the risks that you see coming as a result of it? Sure. And I'm always energized and, uh, oh, can you hear me? Okay. I'm getting a signal that it's a poor connection. You're, you're still coming through fine. Okay, great. Um, I'm always energized after hearing the social capital partners team talk about their strategy and deals. And, um, it's, uh, it's really important what you're doing, John. Um, yeah, in terms of the institutionalization of capital, I guess we'll take a step back and look at the bigger picture of how markets evolved uh, over the years from, you know, the 50s when it was dominated by individual investors to now when it's uh, fairly dominated by institutional investors. OEC data shows that today institutional investors hold about 41% of global market capitalization and uh, that's even higher in certain markets like the United States. Um, and, you know, when we talk about institutional investors, we're talking about uh, pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, foundations, endowments. Um, and these institutions, uh, interestingly, many would argue, and I would agree, have um, very significant power in terms of uh, demanding or encouraging their asset managers that they uh, use to invest through, as well as their, their portfolio companies that they sometimes direct invest directly in or through asset managers. They have a lot of influence in encouraging them to adopt stronger ESG practices. And so um, there's this uh, uh, philosophy that's developed, um, a term called universal owners. So these institutional Investors are exposed to every industry, every asset class, every geography because their portfolios are so big in the economy, in the global economy. And, um, and so a significant part of their return actually comes from uh, systematic factors or factors across the entire uh, economy and markets that can't be diversified away as opposed to individual um, returns from coming from the companies uh, or outperformance. Uh, known as alpha. So um, a significant part of these investors' returns comes from uh, beta factors. And so they, they, in terms of, you know, wealth inequality, um, income inequality, climate risk, 
these are uh, systematic risks that they can't diversify away. And so they should have an incentive to uh, demand better practices from their portfolio companies and asset managers. Um, there are a few uh, uh, complications that folks are working through in terms of, you know, the fiduciary duty and fulfilling um, fulfilling that and, and interpreting materiality when it comes to implementing that strategy. But um, the there's significant uptake by institutional investors. On the other hand, institutional investing can be a double-edged sword because the um, data has shown that institutional investors need to deploy so much capital that they deploy it in large chunks. And so that goes to large asset managers and it goes to large companies. And so that can create situations where uh, emerging managers, diverse managers are not getting the capital that they need and smaller companies aren't getting the capital they need. Uh, There was a great article uh, when it comes to the VC market, for instance, there was a great article in New Yorker magazine uh, recently about, it was at the end of last year, about WeWork and how, you know, SoftBank, uh, one of WeWork's main investors, had so much capital that they just kept throwing it at WeWork and WeWork would outcompete all of the competition um, and leave and squeeze out opportunity for SMEs. And they weren't even the right company to really, um, you know, be gaining market share and, and be dominant. They weren't sustainable. Um, and, you know, I noticed that Astrid Schultz is on the call, and she's done some incredible work on alternative financing structures uh, with the Zebras Unite movement. And um, there are a number of other folks out there working on this Village Capital, Kauffman Foundation, um, Annie Patton Powers, uh, Candide Group, um, who who have more regenerative investment structures. But these institutional investors, because they're so large and their capital flows are so cumbersome, it's hard for them to invest in newer regenerative investment structures. And so they're they're reallocating with the large trusted managers that they've had for a long time. And so you see most of the capital going to the big names and they're just getting bigger. You know, just to give you an idea of some of these statistics, in 2019, the 20 largest PE funds captured 45% of all committed capital versus 29% five years ago. The first half of 2020 outraised 2019 by $6 billion with 214 fewer funds. 80.7% of private capital funds closed in 2020 increased their size from their predecessors, growing from growing 43.4% on a median basis. And the PE industry is likely to become more concentrated. Kohler Capital uh, recently did a survey where three fourths of limited partners or investors into private equity expect that the largest GPs or private equity funds managers to attract a higher proportion of total commitments in the next five years. Um, and you can also receive that reflected in the median um, and mean deal sizes. So the medi- median deal size went from 40 million in 2002 to about 110 million in 2019. And the mean deal size went from about 180 million in 2002 to nearly 500 million in 2019, um, according to PitchBook data. And so, you know, what you see is this um, people talk about corporate consolidation and they talk about antitrust. Um, as a way to to address corporate consolidation and you know, tying this specifically for wealth and income inequality for those who aren't familiar with the connection, uh, because of corporate consolidation, there's less opportunity for SMEs. Um, it results in monopsony power or, or pricing power over wages with very few large dominant firms in the economy. Um, it, it has a 
a host of other, you know, complex negative impacts um, that are related to wealth inequality. Um, but, uh, but, you know, this is, this is very problematic. And so one of the things that we're looking at is how to work with institutional investors to deconsolidate their capital flows. Um, you know, the one other thing that I would say is that because their capital flows are consolidated, it also results in very pro-cyclical investment activity where um, so much capital is now flowing to private equity and other uh, high-risk asset classes, leverage loans, CLOs, high-yield bonds, um, private debt, that those asset classes are just ballooning. And when there's too much capital chasing too few deals, the valuations go up and the returns go down. Um, uh, valuations go up in equities uh, and the returns go down across the board. And so when valuations go up in equities, then there's an incentive to pile on debt and leverage. And we're in a situation now in the economy where uh, non-financial corporate debt has doubled since the global financial crisis because we're in this low interest rate environment combined with institutional capital flows. Um, there's just a, a, so much risk that's built up in the markets. And I can, I can dive into that a little bit in more detail because it's a complex topic, but I'll just uh, pause there because I feel like I've been talking a long time. No, and, thank and, you, and, Delilah. And, oh, sorry. And sorry, go, go ahead, John. I, I had a question to, after, <laughs> after you go. <laughs> can I just add one thing to that I'm not, uh, on Delilah's? Because I think it's such an important topic, um, you know, this idea that, you know, pension funds, again, being and sovereign wealth funds having this money and piling them into private equity. It's interesting to think about, um, especially those larger um, funds that I was talking about, it's interesting to think about who runs those funds, right? And, um, you know, if, if you look at the senior managers, or the, the, the senior managing directors, the senior partners of those funds, it is all white guys, like all white guys. Um, and, you know, y- you have a, a pension fund who talk about you know, ESG and we, we want, you know, public boards to have 30%, you know, whatever. They don't ever talk about who should be running the private equity funds. And so much money goes, you know, this is, part, this is again, as we're talking about kind of the, the, the under-discussed parts of wealth inequality, um, all of this retirement money going into uh, private equity um, where the, the senior partners, they, these guys make millions of dollars, all white guys. So, you know, my favorite is Little John & Co. If you ever get a chance to look at the private equity company Little John & Co. and look at their team, like it is hilarious. So, so I just, you know, wanted to add that as an element of, of the type of problem that Delilah is trying to tackle in her work. No, thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's really important to point out. And, um, and I, I love uh, that you had pointed out Astrid in um, the audience. So Astrid, I'm so happy that you were able to come up. I just had two quick questions and I also invited a few people up that um, may have uh, points to chime in with later on. Um, but uh, Shira and Aaron were great. But Delilah, you had mentioned um, you know, making that shift into PE. And, and kind of moving away from public equities. And, and I guess I just kind of had two questions. And also this uh, relates to what John had mentioned about ESOPs. And really, you know, curious to know as far as the ways that pension funds deploy their capital, it's one great to see impact focused vehicles that can actually fit those strict mandates that the pension funds have in terms of minimum fund size, uh, liquidity requirements, track record, et cetera. Um, and wondering if there's anything potentially down the road that can be done to 
maybe shift those structures or those mandates to ones that are a little more friendly to impact vehicles, but also making that shift, Delilah, from, um, you know, to PE in, in Africa, how much does FX or, or do other factors come into play when even deciding, and, and for anybody up here really, where to deploy impact capital globally? Because conceivably, like US and Canadian dollars could potentially go further in Africa or Asia compared to, you know, other regions where the currency is stronger versus the dollar. So wondering if that comes into play at all when you even just think of, you know, where can the capital that we do have access to do the most good? Um, and then, of course, Astrid, I'm so happy that you were able to come up and um, would love to have you join in as well. So thanks, guys. Thanks, Elise. Um, should I start or should... Um... Please, anybody, yeah. <laughs> Sure. Um, I mean, I'll touch on FS, FX risk briefly. Um, I haven't been uh, as active in frontier markets over the past uh, couple of years as I used to be. And so, um, you know, I really think that it depends on the investor. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on from a macroeconomic perspective right now post-COVID. Um, so I think that uh, I'm, I'm not as up to speed on the general sentiment in this particular, you know, post-COVID environment. Um, there's, there are a lot of moving factors, but certainly for some investors that, that plays a big role. Um, in terms of deconsolidating capital flows, I think that there's been a lot of great work already to try to convince institutional investors to invest in, um, smaller emerging managers. And there's been a, a decent amount of data that's been produced that shows that smaller and emerging managers, um, diverse managers outperform uh, frequently. Um, but there's also data that shows that the largest, uh, most established managers in the market um, have consistent returns and they're consistently decent. And if they're not decent, then there's this, you know, cover of um, that has to do with career risk where the investment professionals who selected that fund or the consultants, uh, you know, have this cover of nobody ever got fired for hiring, you know, that saying that goes, nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey or IBM. Well, nobody ever yeah. got fired for hiring Blackstone <laughs> or Apollo or KKR or Carlisle. Um, right. right. However, you know, I think that something that's underappreciated and um, that's that's really not talked about enough is that actually allocating to those managers at this point in time might actually be producing lower and lower returns um, because of this dynamic that I uh, touched on briefly before, where there's so much capital flooding these asset classes that the returns get eroded away. The competition for deals, you know, goes up. Therefore, the valuations go up. Therefore, it becomes harder to, to find deals, especially if you're a large manager with large capital flows to deploy. So you end up chasing larger deals and you're competing with these other managers, large managers, you know, chasing those deals. So it's better to deconsolidate the capital flows and um, perhaps have, you know, stronger returns in the, in the, um, uh, from from these smaller managers. And I think you're going to see, I mean, we predict that over time, the returns for these large managers are going to come down uh, relative to the to the smaller managers. And, and that, that will be more obvious. Um, 
uh, to institutional investors that they actually need to deconsolidate capital flows in order to um, to avoid uh, asset class correlations that and to be able to diversify appropriately and, and get higher returns. The other thing I'll say, you know, touching back to this uh, alternative capital structure idea is that, you know, some of the uh, structures that um, Astrid and one of our advisors, Agnes uh, Desiewicz, um, and others are advocating for, like revenue-based financing and equity redemptions, some of these structures are sort of quasi-equity. And so they have uh, risk return profiles in the middle of the risk return spectrum, as opposed to super high risk that overcompensates for the lower returning fixed income part of the portfolio from low interest rates. And we actually believe that um, a higher allocation to the middle of the risk return spectrum should be evaluated further to see if that's a stronger strategy in the long term for reducing systematic risk um, and reducing asset class correlation. And so institutional investors, instead of you know, allocating so much capital to super high risk private equity leverage loans, CLOs, high yield bonds, where leverage ratios are super high right now and creating, you know, financial um, stability risk throughout the economy. Maybe they could allocate more to the middle of the risk return spectrum, get stronger returns, be able to meet their, you know, 7% required rate of return because these, these asset classes are returning, you know, high single digit, low double digits, um, and, uh, and de-risk their portfolios and therefore the economy. Amazing. Thank you. Go ahead, David. And also, it'd be great if Astrid were... Oh, hi, yeah. she unmuted. I was just going to welcome <laughs> uh, everyone else into the conversation. If there's other folks that are listening and want to have something they want to contribute, please you feel free to raise your, your hands. And just quickly to reset the room, uh, you know, I think it's in the, uh, the title, but we are talking with uh, Delilah uh, Rothenberg and John Shell about uh, the causes of wealth inequality that you know are maybe less talked about than some of the bigger factors that uh, that get more attention. So, uh, Astrid, thank you. I'm so glad you're you're here. <laughs> well, thanks for for having me. I really just came to listen to Delilah, which I could do all day long. I mean, this is just I mean the way you think about sort of the deep structural problems in finance are just um, so illuminating and way ahead of the. The, the, the general discourse, right? Um, and so, yeah, but anyway, I came for the brain candy, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll hang out on stage for a bit, if, if I may. Um, the, and on this, on this issue of, on this topic of alternative uh, capital and alternative structures, I, just, I was just reflecting, sitting here reflecting on about a year ago, I think several of us were at the Alternative Capital Summit um, in, uh, back when we were traveling in person, um, hosted by the Kauffman Foundation, uh, in part, in large part, to discuss like what are alternative structures that um, give more control uh, and keep more ownership with founders of of new um, enterprises. Um, how do you think about you know revenue shares? How do you how do you scale that up? How do you create some alternative to venture and bank uh, financing and so on? And there was a yeah, it's like a hundred people in the room and some really great um, pioneers in this space like Bryce Roberts at NDVC. Um, and I like to pick on on Bryce um, because he's he's a good he's a great guy, uh, and his I, I think maybe forty million dollar fund, um, and I distinctly remember being in uh, Kansas City and talking to the chief investment officer of the Kauffman Foundation about her investment practice, um, and it turns out you know I think they have a whatever multi billion dollar corpus she cannot write a check that is smaller than 1% of their 
corporate. And she cannot be less than 10% in any one fund. The smallest check she could write was $25 million. The smallest fund she could be in is $250 million. That doesn't exist. There is no alternative finance fund at the moment, certainly not in the US, none that I'm aware of, that she could even invest in. Right? And that's, that's a, such a deep integral problem to what we're talking about. Like we don't have the, the sort of step-down function that um, or the, 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 the tools, the, the, the vehicles that you can that step that capital down the way Delilah was describing. Uh, and that's a huge area for much needed innovation um, and for some hacks, frankly. You know, I mean, part of what I came up here for is to, to find out from John, like, what's his secret sauce to get a pension fund to play, um, you know, with this ESOP strategy? Uh, because that's, that's, that sounds to me like a really desirable sort of shortcut to getting some, um, you know, larger ticket sizes written into the right direction of, you know, democratizing ownership and therefore enhancing wealth creation. Um, and maybe just to, to finish my little soliloquy here on, on one other observation, a friend of mine works for the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. And of course, you may know Norway, you know, they now have a congressional mandate to get out of fossil fuels, etc. And I said to him, so what do you do? Like, how do you invest with this great new carbon neutral mandate that the Sovereign Wealth Fund has? No, guess what? I mean, he can't write a check smaller than nine figures. <laughs> so basically what they're investing in is platinum lead qualified buildings in Singapore and San Francisco. And that, again, is not a strategy wow. that's going to get us to like a more diversified, more equitable, more sustainable you know, economy and society. And so, again, like back kudos to Delilah to thinking about and, and, and being at the, the tip of the sphere of figuring out these step down functions. And then I really do want to hear your secret sauce, John, for how we how we get to pension funds who are all run by middle-aged or older white guys. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the sad truth, uh, Astrid, is we found a deal big enough, right? I mean, that's it. Uh, we we have there's no we haven't figured out. So 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 I want, if I can pivot off that for for two quick stories because. The fact that capital loves monopoly, which is really what we're talking about, right? Capital loves monopoly, and um, uh, you know, the, and and so the and, you know, and all of this comes back to sales, you know, scale, 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 and um, uh, two things coming out of that. I, I was really involved at the very beginning of the COVID economic crisis in small business stuff. I got a call from a guy who'd worked at a pension fund and was like, "How can we?" How can we help? I re really want to get our industry focused on helping small business. I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, this is like at the corner store or a restaurant. How are you going to get your capital into those places? He's like, oh, you're right. There's no possibility. I'm like, okay, well, thanks for calling. Um, the 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 other one uh, um, is just this capitalism monopoly problem. And this, you know, I, I might pivot, David, if you'll let me just a, a little Please. bit to kind of these, uh, um, you know, uh, and uh, uh, un unusual issues that, that drive wealth inequality. And this is one I know well from the vet industry. And this is my favorite example where um, if so, so let's say there's a veterinary practice for sale, right? Your local vet, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, five vets in it. No owner's had it for a long time. And there's another vet that's worked there for 20 years. The vet who works there for 20 years wants to buy the practice. They go into the bank and they will go see the professional lending group uh, at the bank, of which most banks have. And they'll say, oh, you're a veterinarian. That's great. We know exactly how to serve you. 
we will give you four times the cash flow of the practice that you're working at. You have, all you have to do is put up your house uh, as collateral. Um, and you can use that debt. You don't need to put any equity down because the price of veterinary practices have been four times for, you know, 70 years. You can buy your vet practice and pay it down over a few years. And there you go. And, and the vet will say, well, great. I'll go, I'll go take that to, um, you know, the owner. Uh, and they go to the owner and the owner says, well, I've been offered seven times cash flow for my business by this private equity funded uh, a group. And uh, he said, well, I guess that's it for me. I, I now can't buy your practice. And what happened at the, you know, at the same bank is that private equity funded group went to the bank and said, how much debt will you give me to buy vet practices? They say, well, you're, you've come to the private equity group. We'll give you six times uh, a debt for you to buy that very same practice. And so what the bank has done uh, is chosen to give the private equity group uh, more debt, likely at a lower rate, likely for a shorter period of time, and certainly with no security. When the truth is, the risk of that vet practice paying back the debt is way higher with the private equity group, who's massively leveraged. And if there's anything, anything happens in the economy that actually affects veterinary practices, they could go bankrupt. Individual vets who own practices never go bankrupt, right? So you have this bank who has made this choice, same bank, to support the private equity company over the individual making the wrong capital allocation decision, right? And knowing that that's true, you can no longer believe in the efficient markets hypothesis. You can no longer believe that capital finds the right places. What capital likes is monopoly. And, and, and so this is just one little, and, and, and what we're, and as a result, all of these industries, so be it vet, be it dental, be it physio, you name it, are almost entirely staffed by women now, right? I mean, you know, the graduation of, of veterinarians, it's like 90% women, entirely owned by men. And, uh, um, and, and the future is more of that. Because if you're a veterinarian, you can't buy a practice anymore. So, you know, anyway, I, I just I wanted to raise that as, as sort of my favorite example of how the system, um, nobody really knows this is all happening in the background, uh, um, is creating more and more wealth inequality through how ownership works. Go ahead, Delilah. John, that's really a great example. And I think that um, it brings up another point uh, that overlaps with some other issues going on in the economy with bank lending um, that, that I'm struggling to work through how to tackle, which is that because of regulation uh, following the global financial crisis on banks, banks have been very restricted in lending to um, you know, the middle market and uh, the lower, you know, smaller end of the market. And so uh, they've really preferred to stick with financing of large institutionalized players, larger companies. And um, there's a, a movement now, um, it's not a movement, but there's a emergence of concern with um, the, the, uh, among some of the international um, financial stability monitoring organizations. Um, where they're looking at the fact that banks are so highly regulated now, but the um, non-bank uh, financial institutions, the NBFIs, are also called shadow banks, which include 
you know, capital markets, essentially, it's private equity, it's private debt. Um, they're not highly regulated. And so, you know, you end up with this situation where uh, a lot of the financing that can take place in the middle market and the smaller end of the market is happening in this shadow banking system. And uh, it's creating a lot of risk. Leverage ratios are at historical highs. Covenants are light. Um, uh, you know, there's a practice of EBITDA addbacks and um, all kinds of engineering with accounting to make the company's financials look more attractive than they are mm-hmm. so that they can have more leverage. And it's it's really problematic. And it, it leads to this, um, you know, contribution to the trend of monopolization, which you mentioned, which is so important. I want to give a shout out to our board chair, Denise Hearn, who as a fellow with the here, here. Economic Liter- Liberties Project and uh, co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, a great book that had a huge influence on me when it came out in 2018. I highly recommend reading it. I pinged uh, Denise Delilah. to see if I could get her into the room, but she's uh, her notifications are off. Oh, and Delilah, I'd love to ask you, um, hypothetically, if you had someone on the DNI committee at a bank in this conversation right now, um, like what what would you love to see banks do that they can do right now? That's question one. And then also, what banks do you think are starting a, are starting to approach this well right now? Thanks, Shira, and hi. Um, hi. They're great questions. I. Um, you know, I only spent a brief period of time at a large bank following the global financial crisis. So I was at their Stearns during the crisis, and then I spent a year with Citigroup and their environmental and social risk management team, um, uh, you know, reviewing deals. And, um, you know, we we had a say um, regarding credit risk. And so, you know, we, we talked to other risk departments in the risk group. And um, I have to say, I didn't spend enough time there to really, um, to really understand. And, and I'm I'm trying to do some research on this now. What the actual interventions would be, but I think that that lines up the opportunity for a great clubhouse conversation. Um, I know, you know, since banks are highly regulated, their staff can probably only say so much in public forums. But I would love to hear the answers, you know, directly from folks in banking. And I know some some individuals who are very thoughtful in these institutions who, who could probably, um, you know. I might really? have in there, how it could. Um, uh, just briefly, there is a, an interesting initiative underway um, here in the U.S. Um, by a group of uh, sort of smaller and mid-sized banks called Underwriting for Racial Justice. And so they're grappling with exactly that question, Shira. And the short answer is product development, right? The, the short answer is we need different kinds of products that um, help these banks make um, lending decisions to uh, new entrepreneurs, to communities of color, to all the, all the people that they have declared are just too risky for them to um, make their loans to it in their present practice. And um, that's an initiative that's, again, just getting underway, I think, spearheaded by Beneficial State Bank. And even in the initial conversations there, I can tell you, they're super interested in, question, uh, in, 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 in products um, like character-based loans that some lenders have been experimenting with with great success, including our friends at Colorado Lending Source, um, who have a you know very low single-digit default rate on a multi-million-dollar uh, loan portfolio that is not underwritten according to, to the usual credit underwriting uh, criteria, but uses, um, as the name suggests, character and uh, community testimonials 
and uh, cash projections as a basis for, for uh, loan origination. Fantastic. Thank you. And I'll, I'll follow up with you on that after Astrid. Thank you. Yeah, please do. Go ahead, I also, Delilah. you know, wanted to, oh, sorry, Dave. Do this no, no, please thing. jump in. I want this to be a free-flowing conversation. Um, yeah, I, I, so there was something that Astrid said before that I really wanted to build on. By the way, um, the, I, I really admire your work, Astrid, and I, I'm, you know, I was uh, blushing when you were saying nice things about me earlier because I think so highly of you. So thank you. Um, but, um, you know, I, going back to one thing that you said earlier about the, what's called concentration limits for those who aren't familiar in the room, this idea that, uh, the large institutional investors have, um, you know, can have to write large check sizes. Um, that, that comes from a place of risk mitigation. Um, and, you know, and also I think, um, the managing transaction costs, right? So the transaction costs for a small deal might be just as high for a large deal. And so it makes more sense to go after the large um, deals, but also, you know, can come from a place of risk mitigation where it just seems like smaller managers are, are less stable and have less of a track record. So they might be riskier. And I think that number one, you know, conversation needs to be had about what, what is risky. I mean, Participating in pro-cyclical behavior and um, allocating capital to what everybody else is allocating to, where you can't get returns anymore, eventually that's risky, um, and that needs to be highlighted more. And then I think you know the other thing is that uh, cost-benefit analysis really needs to be done as to what are the transaction costs for deconsolidating capital flows, um, and politically, I think that. Um, you know, if, if, for instance, public pension funds, city and state pension funds, um, were, were to make decisions to invest in more community, uh, companies and, and SMEs, I think that, um, that could be politically attractive to legislatures and legislatures could approve more funding for those pension funds, for the institutional investors to build the teams that they need to invest in smaller deals locally. So, you know, that could, that could win over some political support. So that's something else that we're exploring um, that I think is really important. There was something else that I wanted to say and I totally forgot. And that's probably a good thing because I'm talking a lot. Like, I love that structural idea, Delilah. I think that's, that's super cool. That idea of, of, um, city pension funds, uh, uh, spending their money locally. I think, you know, like, it's interesting listening, um, cause I've, I've been following Astrid's work for a long time, uh, and Delilah, I think years since we, we, uh, um, first saw it. And, you know, there's all, there's all these brilliant people, right. Who are thinking about how do we, uh, shift the system, um, so that it allocates capital in a different way with different outcomes. But the the it's tough sledding, right? I mean, it is like one at a time. I mean, you know, the, the you guys are examples of, of 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 people who've managed to stick through it and um and are getting somewhere. But but still, I mean, if you talk about indie indie.vc having thirty million dollars, I mean, it's nothing, right? And I think that, that um 
like it's unbelievable work by incredibly talented people. And then there's like a, you know, middling private equity guy in, I don't know, New York somewhere who's got his, his finger on a billion dollars, right? He's not, he's not even that bright. He just went to the right school and, and, you know, looks good in a suit. And I just, I think there's like, I hope, I hope we can talk a little bit about like what we're up against here and, and how it all, cause you know, there are like taxes, right? So, so at some point we need to talk about um, how, how a lot of this comes back to how tax is structured and, you know, the rate of tax on capital gains versus the rate of tax on interest versus the rate of tax on dividends and how that, um, uh, you know, um, drives money toward the buying and selling of companies and what the implications are. There's no one has ever studied, by the way, uh, what happens when a private equity company buys a company, sells it to another private equity company, who sells it to another private equity company, who sells it to another one, which has happened now a few times, right? I mean, we, private equity has only been around for a few decades, but that's starting to happen. And we have no idea what the impact of that is on the community because, you know, there's no transparency in academics are only willing to do research when they, there are data sets that they can download from some site. Um, uh, uh, so we don't know, but, but we know that our tax, the way we have our tax structured encourages that. We have this thing called carried interest, which uh, um, allows uh, uh, private equity managers to um, be paid you know, income, effectively bonuses for the good performance of their investments, and they get to only pay capital gains tax on that. And and that and you have all of these structures in all of the Western countries. So so Canada has it, UK has it, Australia has it, US has it. Um, so you know, there's the threat. Well, if I do anything about it, I mean, carried interest has been in every political conversation for oops. Uh, for, you know, uh, I don't know how many years. I, I think I first heard about it 20 years ago. And they're like, we got to get rid of this. Kid. Still there. Why? Because they're worried that, you know, the, the companies would just move to London uh, or Toronto. And so, you know, we, we, have, we talk about globalization. We have these agreements, international agreements on trade. We have international agreements now on climate change. You know, we should start talking about an international agreement on tax rates. And, you know, uh, and some of the other more structural things we need to do so that, you know, people like Astrid and people like Delilah and to some extent people like us don't have to fight such an uphill battle to do things that are, that are um, clearly better for a community and clearly better for the economy. And John, that same question can even be asked or that same challenge can be offered domestically within the United States too. Um, I'm in Miami right now because I'm from here and my boyfriend and I came down here from New York to be closer to my parents. But just think about how many people you know who moved, who left New York for Florida, um, and in many ways, saying directly because of the tax rate here, because there's no state income tax. You know, so Silicon my question Valley is to Austin, right? You know, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, um, yeah no, I mean, tax competition <laughs> is like I mean, think about Ireland, right? There should be no headquarters of, of, of tech companies in Ireland. Like there should be none, but there are tons because they said world charged the lowest tax rate and the world was like, okay, right? I mean, what are we doing when, when we allow that, right? 
I want to, um, there's been a, yeah. a few people involved uh, sitting on stage and I want to open the, uh, give space for people to join. Mahana, it sounds like you have something you want to contribute and then we'll, uh, I want to make some space for Aaron and Jazz and everyone else who's been waiting patiently. Yeah, thanks, David. Um, and thank you all for sharing such uh, uh, such insights. This has been a, a really great, uh, uh, great, great experience. Um, you know, I, maybe I can give some background about myself. I've been working in venture capital for the last 10 years um, out of the Bay Area right now in, in Los Angeles. And, you know, one of the things that um, kind of came to mind, I'm a relative newcomer to the world of impact investing. And you know, as, as I sort of started this journey about a year and a half ago, uh, realized that when it comes to impact, uh, you know, first of all, what is it? How do you quantify it? How do you measure it? How do you track it? And I, I find that when you look at what is funding social enterprises and you have these all these impact funds, well, then funds are intrinsically for-profit vehicles, aren't they? So, you know, people raise funds to return funds. And that got me really thinking about, you know, how do we then change or evolve let's say the money flows into these startups, these social enterprises that are, you know, very altruistic when they start, very kind of fundamentally purpose-driven. Um, and so one of the things that that kind of dawned on me is this, this whole concept around the impact economy. And I'd love people's thoughts here, to hear people's thoughts on specifically how do you build an economy that is, you know, impact first and then profit later, as opposed to leading with profit and trying to fit in impact as part of its, uh, you know, uh, of its uh, sort of um, approach and, 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 and saying, oh, we're e-, and now, especially nowadays, everything is, has an impact, you know, connotation, ESG this and ESG that. Uh, but I'm always, you know, grappling with this question of, of building something that is, you know, fundamentally impact first and then at, attaching the profit piece. And when you think about what guys like Chamath have done with social capital, literally like giving back LPs their money and saying, I'm going to turn this into a hold co. That really got me thinking on on, on maybe that is a, a more optimal way to invest in startups, right? If you are, if you, if you're structured as a hold co, number one, you can be more patient with the capital that you, de- you deploy. Number two, you can offer a variety of financing options, which is something that we talked about already here. And number three, you can build a, a, a financial model that is not dependent on the exit, which is what funds require for them to justify their existence. You can actually bake in a dividend plan with the entrepreneurs in such a way where, you know, uh, I'm going to reinvest my profits into more social enterprises. And so the exit becomes the cherry on the Sunday as opposed to the Sunday itself. You know what I mean? Um, and that's that's something that I feel we should see more of frankly, in the VC space. Um, and obviously that opens up a whole array of what Astrid is doing with the whole concept of steward ownership, right? Like, so that's how you kind of fundamentally, I think could be a great, great place to start, but I'd love to hear all of your thoughts. Thank you. Mahana, thanks so much for that really thoughtful question. Um, I'll open that up to anyone who wants to, to jump in there. Astrid, John, Delilah. I mean, I'll, I'll just say that um, if... Thank you, uh, Mohanad. Um, it reminds me of a conversation. It reminds me of some of the early learning I had um, when I was working with a team to raise a hold co. And we actually pitched that holding company uh, that was developing clean energy in Africa to one of John's colleagues, Taylor Sikhan, who um, has become one of my, uh, you know, 
trusted advisors. Um, he's on a, our advisory committee, so uh, very grateful for that. And, um, you know, Taylor was then at a pension fund. And, uh, you know, it was hard for that pension fund, Taylor went over all these reasons why it was difficult for them to invest in a hold co and it was too small. And um, I learned so much from that conversation with Taylor. Uh, and, but I, I agree. I think that holding companies have a lot of attractive um, features as you described, and um, it would be good to, to have more permanent capital vehicles out there. Uh, interestingly, I did right. see a note come out from PitchBook today that said that uh, permanent capital vehicles can actually be a way for asset managers to collect more fees. I need to dig into that rationale a little bit more. Back when we had a holding company, we argued that you know there was sort of one set of management fees that could be a G&A budget charged annually um, as opposed to fees on fees and fund uh, for follow-on funds. But um, but I think it's a really good point. You know, the other thing that I would say is just transitioning to an impact economy. One of the other things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is ESG versus impact investing. And if you can, you know, invest in a way, not just in the portfolio company operations, but also your investment structures, where you take an approach of doing no harm and really avoiding harm, then it 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 seems like one of the, I don't know if this is the right way to use the, the term first principles, but it seems like, you know, one of the very first things that should happen. Um, because if you, if we invest in a way where we are creating risk for other stakeholders and doing harm, that creates more of a demand for impact investing. And you look at, you know, the amount of capital that's required to achieve the UN sustainable development goals. Well, that amount's just going to grow if we continue to, you know, do harm. So I, I think that that should be you know, top priority for all investors out there, even before they think about, you know, building a renewable energy project or investing in a affordable housing or some financial inclusion, like what harm can this do and how do I mitigate or avoid that? Because there is harm in impact investing too. And it's just crazy that, you know, there isn't an ESG integration lens over so many impact investments. David, if I could say something on hold coast. Please, Ricardo. Uh, yeah, I'm Ricardo Bayona, partner and founder at a group called Encourage Capital. We're an impact investment firm uh, headquartered in New York, but I'm in San Francisco. And hey, Astrid, been a while. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, on the issue of Holdco's, I fully agree with you, Mahan. Uh, it could be an interesting vehicle. We uh, thought that too and began creating a series of uh, more evergreen structures for investment in one case on fisheries to address the issues of overfishing worldwide, and in another case on carbon and climate. And while in the initial discussions with the potential investors, it was like, you know, all of the things you said, such a great idea, long-term holding, you know, you don't have the pressure, it's evergreen, you can, you can increase and increase the impact and increase and increase the benefits. When we finally came around and said, okay, we've built it, we've structured it, we've you know, thought of different ways for you to get your dividends and all those good things, uh, but now it's time to pull out the checkbook, all of them said, no, nah, can't do because of the liquidity issues. Uh, it isn't liquid enough for us. We prefer the old structure of you know, a seven-year fund with a 2 and 20 standard type fund. So you know, careful what some people say and versus what they end up doing. And I'm not talking about 
non-impact investors here. I'm talking about, you know, the people who, who should have the most risk capital out there, people like foundations with their PRIs and MRIs and all the rest of it. Um, so it's a uh, it's it's in theory a great thing, but as Yogi Berra used to say, in theory there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. And the only thing I would add add to that, which I think like is really interesting to hear a real example, um, but I think there's a there's a it comes back to a tax rate problem, right? As long as you are uh, paying people more to buy and sell companies than you are to make money and pay dividends, people will choose to buy and sell companies. And so I think, I think, you know, it, it wasn't there one massive, and Delilah, you'll know this, I think one massive uh, PE firm tried to raise uh, an evergreen fund and, and couldn't. Um, is that, is that not right over the last uh, couple of years? It might be right, but there's actually been a growing trend of some of the large PE funds raising um, permanent capital vehicles and evergreen funds, particularly since the secondary market has developed. So I think that while liquidity was definitely, you know, a concern, one certainly that I, I heard from, you know, the funds that we were pitching uh, with the vehicle I mentioned before, it's becoming less of a concern now. And investors are also starting to realize that they can get liquidity through dividend distributions as well as asset sales in the holding company uh, uh, distributed through dividends. So, um, and they were okay with that versus, versus uh, you know, okay with the tax rates, the additional tax on that? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't, um, looked into that enough, but it does seem like investors are warming up to permanent capital vehicles based on, um, the, the data that's coming out in private equity international and PitchBook. That's probably good. I yeah. didn't know the backstory with you, by the way. That's awesome. It, it, it would be good. I think if, if we see more of these and if they're structured appropriately, I think it is harder to entice some people with some of these structures. And I don't think the liquidity issues, at least in the cases we were talking to, not really about taxes. It, it really was about, you know, keeping wanting to cycle capital in different ways. And, uh, and so, you know, they have this liquidity issue in their heads. And when it gets time to actually pull out checkbooks, it gets more difficult. I'd love it if, if we saw more of them. So, Ricardo, with your experience, basically everyone saying somebody should be doing this, pretty but not me. <laughs> Just pretty not much. much. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's pretty much what's going on, right? And I think what's I'm, I'm flashing back to um, the days at EcoTrust uh, in, in my previous career when we built the, the EcoTrust Forest Fund, an evergreen vehicle. Um, and it was just as painful as Ricardo describes, right? And um, and it, it, it makes you realize that it's not enough to just build the innovative products. You actually need sort of maybe it's a pincer move, right? You need the policy pressure or maybe it's the popular uh, populist pressure uh, for somebody at scale to do this differently, right? Whether it's the whether it's a large foundation that has a significant uh, corpus and, and will model it on its entire corpus. Um, so not like our friends at the Heron Foundation, you know, which is relatively small, but somebody like a Rockefeller or a Ford Foundation, or if it was a state pension system, um, you know, maybe California could get there, or maybe my home state of Oregon, you know, where the, the public, it's, uh, it's one of the largest... Um, public pension systems in the country with uh, close to 100 billion in assets under management. And to John's earlier point, that's all managed by, by a bunch of old white guys. Um, and so you'd almost have to imagine the, the what are the enabling conditions that, that become more of a forcing mechanism 
for these um, institutional funds um, or pots of capital to be to be managed differently, right? And with something like a pension system, you might say, well, why why are we investing in ten year funds anyway, right? Like these are these are supposed to be long term strategies. Um, can we create more of a mandate to think longer term uh, and in different kinds of vehicles? So, so it seems like like the general problem is one of of um, cons- the, const- the these constraints that we want to place on ourselves, and we're basically saying somebody should go tie one hand behind their back, and then we'll all really root for them to succeed. But but when we do that, you know, it's that tying of one hand behind their back. The, these are these are actual like specific constraints. What what is the environment whereby those no no longer are are competitive disadvantages, uh, and and are, are no longer constraints to to investment? Well, what, I, what what would you identify? I don't know if I'm going to answer your question right, uh, Jazz, but but. I don't. I don't think we should be tying one uh, pension funds, uh, uh, you know, arm behind their back. We should be tying all of their, every pension funds arm behind their back, right? I, I um, agree. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I I would just uh, I I'd say that you know I think that change is happening slowly with certain, um, with certain things like permanent capital vehicles, um, you know, also mezzanine debt, that wasn't a thing that institutional investors really had a bucket for. Um, in 2015, when I was working on a mez debt fund, and now they've come around and they understand it. So I think, uh, you know, it does take a few bold um, investors out there to realize the benefits and then others start to follow. Um you know, the other thing that I'd say in terms of permanent capital vehicles is that I think there's a deeper issue here uh, when it comes to short-termism and when it, because we often measure returns in private markets, alternative markets in terms of IRR. And IRR has a time value of money component where you want to make as much money back as fast as possible. Um, and so that has and you want to spend as little as possible in the early stages. Um, that can be particularly problematic for an infrastructure project where you have to do, you know, invest in a pretty solid environmental and social um, impact assessment. And so, and, you know, do community engagement and things like that. So I actually think that there are some really um, fundamental issues when it comes to finance and the way we value investments and the tools that we use to construct portfolios uh, and, and allocate capital. Uh, that need to be examined and addressed because that creates the incentive structures for investment professionals to decide what to invest in. And and they're going to want, you know, unfortunately they're evaluated in relatively short-term horizons and things like IRR matter. And, and, and IRR should matter because, you know, you need to, um, because a a dollar, you know, tomorrow uh, can be reinvested and can be more impactful than a dollar, 10 years from now. Um, and you need to understand your opportunity costs, but, but it seems like perhaps de-emphasizing that making as much money back as fast as possible is an important part of the equation. And that's, you know, that's a, a issue with discounting cash flows, um, you know, coming up present value. It's, it's pervasive in financial markets. 
I just want to take a yep. quick second to do a bit, bit of a time check. Delilah and John were both uh, promised that we'd be out of here by by nine thirty. Um, I'm happy to keep the conversation going a little longer, but um, Delilah and John, please feel free um, as we approach nine thirty. If you need to um, to leave the conversation, please feel free to do so. Thanks, Thanks. David. Can I just um, add a little bit to that? I think it's like this, the short-termism I think is, is super important. And a lot of this comes back to who owns things. Um, and I know we've talked a lot about that on this conversation, um, uh, but the more divorced owners get from actual businesses and actual people, the, um, uh, the harder it is to think about the actual or care about the, the people involved, right. And the impact of, of those businesses. And I'll give one um you know, kind of consulting example uh, from my McKinsey days where we were working for a um, uh, a company that happened to be family owned, uh, but a large, uh, um, you know, small box company. And my job was in this project was to optimize labor because it's McKinsey and that's what we do. So I was optimizing labor. So how do I, you know, fire people effectively? And, um, you know, so I got all the data of like when traffic flowed and all these uh, stores and, and when we were staffing. And one of the, the, the findings was that uh, early in the morning, like right when they opened the doors, um, you know, there's not that much traffic. But we had two people uh, uh, employed uh, at the opening, right? And I was like, well, why are we doing that? I mean, we don't have uh, people, uh, you know, we don't have customers really until an hour or two later. Why don't we start the second person later? And so I, you know, as, as again, we do, we kind of calculated that across all whatever 5,000 stores they had. And I'm like, this is a big number. And I showed it to my, to the manager on the project. He's like, well, this is great work. I mean, this is a big number. We are going to save the company a lot of money. And, and so we brought this, uh, so we didn't, we didn't talk to anyone about it. We brought it, to, you know, brought it to our next presentation and said, hey, we can save you whatever, X millions of dollars if you just do this one thing. And they said, yeah, but that's unsafe. What do you mean? Like, well, you know, if you're one person opening the store, I mean, it's much easier to rob that person, right, and break into the store. Um, to which we said, to my great shame, something along the lines of, well, how often does that happen? Right. And, you know, I think had we been working for a private equity-owned company, had we been working for a public company, I think there would have been a, we would have had a rational conversation at that point about how many people's lives are we endangering by doing this and, and, and what's the cost benefit of that. But the company, because it was family owned, said, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> right? We are not going to do that. So, and I never want to hear about that again. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have been in conversations on boards uh, uh, that are private equity owned um, where similar things have come up. Uh, and it's been like, well, if you multiply those savings by 17 times, which is what I believe my exit is, um, that's worth X dollars. And you know in the back of their minds, they're like, well, what is my carry on that? Holy cow, we're going to do it. And and so, uh, and, and of course, you know, they're going to be in it. No one will ever know that. No one knows they're involved in that business. Like if you if you go and look in the website, there's no, this company this is owned by private equity. And, and here are the, 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 the two guys who you need to talk to. No one ever knows. So for them, it's like, okay, I'm going to sell this thing in three or four years. It's, it's probably not going to do anything bad while I'm here. I'm going to make this extra carry. Here I go. And so, you know, this is why uh, uh, all of this work on who owns things, 
how do they think about that ownership? How are they compensated for owning owning those things? How public is it that they own things? You know, these this these are structural questions that we didn't really need to consider 40 years ago, right? Because things were either public or they were owned by the founder or, or whatever. But now it's much more remote. Um, you know, and and it's you know the the nor you know it's it's a it's the sovereign wealth fund of some country that is funding all this stuff. We have you know. So it's just, I think, I think uh, um, uh, this topic of who owns what in the economy drives so much of this activity. John, I, I love the, you know, these years you kind of focus in on these individual moments in time, which I think do a really great job of illustrating, kind of laying bare some of you know, the, the deep entrenched problems that we have with capitalism in its current form. Um, so I, I really appreciate these these examples, and I think probably I'm speaking for a lot of people in the room. Um, I want to just make some space for um, Renee and Navin, who have been waiting a long time and, and patiently um, waiting to participate. Renee, Navin, do you want to join in? Thank you, David. Um, just thank you, first of all, for hosting this. I have learned so much in the past hour so. I've been sitting in on a lot of um, clubhouse rooms around um, social impact and particularly decentralization of governance and power. And, you know, from my personal perspective, I think the future has to be more kind of bioregional circular local economies where the decision makers are the ones who are doing the work. The decisions are being made by the people who live in the communities that are going to be impacted by the environmental repercussions so that, this um, trade-off that we have to be making in the, this kind of global world between profit and the, you know, sustainability and, and um, kind of justice um, factors that, that we can kind of transcend them because we are, we are the people who are going to suffer from the environmental consequences. We are the people who are going to suffer from the inequitable distribution. Um, and I'm here in Charleston, South Carolina, and I've been... Ugh, racking my brain and talking to all sorts of people in this in the city about how we can attract financial um, equity, um, investment equity that's not of the kind that we've all been talking about in this room um, because this is too small. The uh, the exit strategy, there's no exit, right? It's it's dividends. Um, we don't want to scale these businesses. These are meant to be small, circular, bioregional businesses. Um, but without the the financing to get them going. Yeah, I, I know so many talented, passionate people in this town that could make amazing things happen, but there's just not, they don't have the money. There's no money for them to, to do what they want to do. Um, and so I'm, uh, you know, interested in, in things like holding companies, um, but, you know, how to, how to get the money from the pension funds, from the big institutional investors. What I was thinking is, how do we actually get people who live in our community, who have 401ks, who have some discretionary investment money to actually invest, you know, five or 10% of their portfolio in local businesses and, and creating an umbrella kind of holding company that could facilitate that. Um, I'm curious if anybody on in this room right now knows of any efforts uh, like that in the United States, um, uh, either successful or failed. Um, cause I, in, in my uh paradigm of the world that's kind of the direction that we need to go um i do <laughs> um we have a one of the things we're doing at zebus unite and it goes right back to this this question of how do you step down right from the institutional capital how do you disaggregate it um 
basically and and put it in the hands of more local and independent um managers of funds that are that are making these sorts of uh you know decisions of the kind that you're describing right but 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 um and, and support sort of local local entrepreneurs that are that are creating community health and wealth um one of the things we got going at at Zebus Unite in in partnership with Common Future and the Certina Foundation is a national network of capital innovators of exactly the kind that you're describing Renee so these are people who are creating community-based um, uh, debt, equity, and or real estate funds that have some shared needs and some shared opportunities around making things happen sort of the right way. And we're now building some uh, middleware. <laughs> Think of it as plumbing, right? To help step down the institutional capital into these capillaries of smaller local funds. Uh, we're calling it the Inclusive Capital Collective. We've been in stealth mode, <laughs> as as the saying goes. We'll have more to say about that. But if you drop me a line at um, astrid.zebosunite.com, I can get you in touch with You're not in some stealth mode anymore, Astrid. Well, now I'm not, I guess. <laughs> uh, we started talking about it. We'll have more to say about it in, in the next few weeks. But it's basically that realization, right, that there are capital innovators everywhere building these really exciting products to 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 bridge the capital chasms they see in their communities um, and they have some shared needs and opportunities around which we can do interesting things like uh, creating shared credit enhancement facilities or pointing a large funnel at institutional investors and then solving for the disaggregation inside a um, a shared piece of infrastructure like like the ICC. So um, that's- Astrid, uh, let me just say that is absolutely what I wanted to hear. Clubhouse is magic. This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes it's magic. Casper, every time you start talking, I'm like, oh, I need to pay attention. I'm going to learn something. I don't know what I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn something. But my my question, do do we have a sense or is this like an unknowable of how big the economy of these these, these projects is that are below like what Delilah was talking about, the inability to write a check smaller than 25 million? Like if you, how, how large is that that economy relative and and relative to the the more moonshot economy above it well i I don't know about moonshots or grass tops and grassroots but i can tell you that the inclusive capital collective last time we asked they could deploy 500 million dollars tomorrow collectively so you know that gets to be some real mining money i mean like it, 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 these are great efforts, and and I think you know I was talking to someone the other day about scale, and 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 she, you know she was walking me through some projects they had done, started grassroots, and then became super important. Um, and and but I think it is important to say, uh, you know, it's like there's the moonshots, which is your kind of Silicon Valley style stuff, um, uh, or and sometimes government, you know, hopefully that should shift entirely to government. It's a whole other conversation. Um, uh, then there's, um, you know, the, the sort of impact stuff that we're talking about. And then there's kind of like all of the economy that lives somewhere else, right? It's manufacturing or retail or, you know, uh, uh, restaurants and bars. And, you know, there it, it's really hard, right? To, to kind of on a one by one basis, even grassroots basis, um, um, shift uh, the direction things are going in. Um, and again, a lot of this comes back to how we think about M&A, how we think about monopoly, um, uh, and how we think about, 
you know, uh, um, uh, taxes again. And, you know, it, 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 an example I, I like to talk about is um, something called search funds, which is where, uh, um, you know, people, uh, you know, an individual says, I want to go buy a company. And uh, someone says, okay, well, I'm going to invest in you. We'll kind of get a club together. We'll invest in you. We'll give you a salary. You go find a business and you buy it. And so, you know, in the sort of small local businesses, someone before was talking about local economies that continue to invest locally, which is, I think, I think most of the people on this call, if not all the people on the call would say that is absolutely the objective, right? Getting to that uh, a place. And so you have these people who have worked in communities and built up their businesses and probably most of the time been pretty good to their communities, cared about it, lived there. And then you have these search funds. Um, and the search funds run around the country trying to find these companies to buy the way that they're structured requires them to sell that company again pretty quickly. Uh, and their objective is to sell it to someone who also doesn't live in that community. Um, and who are these people, the search funds? They are almost entirely white, male, Stanford and Harvard educated people uh, who white, male, Stanford, Harvard educated people are investing in, but they're just 15 years older. Um, and, and so there's just, there's, and there's all this stuff. So you're fighting against that, right? And that's wealth inequality, right? That is, that is, that's real live wealth inequality. Buying it from people who founded it, they're going to try to grow it or at least pay down debt and sell it to somebody else. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't have an, I don't have an obvious answer. I mean, I think there are ways to kind of build alternatives to that. So the different types of people can be searchers, right? Whether they're uh, uh, racialized people or women or, uh, um, you know, people from industry and not like MBAs. Um, uh, who happen to live in communities, um, but tackling those and those, you know, and there's like hundreds of those right now, uh, uh, um, creating wealth inequality as we speak. That's the thing that we get scared about, right? When, when we talk about things at social capital partners, um, uh, that's the kind of thing we talk about. How do you defeat that? Um, and, you know, you can't defeat it by having 10 searchers of color because there's 300 of these other folks. And, and so, you know, I think bringing this stuff up to broader conversations about how we structure society, how we structure capital, um, you know, it's, it's, we love doing the work that we do, but we know that it needs to be a much higher level. The solutions need to come regulatorily through government action that will actually change where most of the economy gets shifted uh, um, in the wrong direction. Yeah, maybe I'll put in a quick plug for the Page 30 Coalition, uh, again, here in the U.S. Um, and that's a group of organizations that are pushing uh, Congress in all the relief and recovery bills that are that are coming forth um, in dealing with the pandemic uh, to insist on the page, page 30 of the CARES Act here in the U.S. stipulates to paying particular attention to women, minorities, uh, rural populations, veteran-created uh, businesses, immigrant-created businesses, et cetera, with a view to basically forcing um, the, the, the financial mechanisms, <laughs> financial structures, to come up with new ideas for how capital and support uh, can flow to these populations, right? And I mentioned earlier, um, you know, this, this banking initiative, uh, underwriting for racial justice, where people are basically beginning to, to think about different kinds of protocols, you know. I mean, these days, when you say to a bank, how come you're, you're so terrible at lending to women and minorities, they'll tell you about the, the Fair Banking uh, Act, right? And it's like, well, okay, guys, we're going to have to figure out a way 
to um, for you to know your customer <laughs> and and get get capital in the right hands of, of business owners. Um, and abs- you're absolutely right, John. So a lot of that will have to be driven by by, by, by regulation. I just want to sorry, Ricardo. I just want to take a quick moment uh, to. You. I just want to mention something. Um, I'm a I'm a former uh, securities and banking lawyer and uh, new to the game here a little bit with Clubhouse. So. Uh, I, I think uh, Astrid and, and John, you brought up something um, very interesting, and I wanted to mention that I, I think currently the way that um, when you're looking at banking, for example, lending, or looking at different funds, and specifically, for example, search funds supporting uh, their own, for example, a group, you know, white males, let's say Stanford graduates, you know, supporting other Stanford graduates, and expecting to to uh, have changes made um, by by higher powers, let's say the government, um, things like this. Even even though there is the Fair Lending Act, for example, in place, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, banks have to operate prele- uh, preliminarily, primarily on uh, for the benefit of of the shareholders as as corporations, at least most of them. And so they're going to underwrite loans that seem most viable. Um, they're, they're not going to be able to, to look at other aspects. Uh, it, there's, a, there's a large chain there, costs related to that. So um, a project, uh, for example, I'm working on out of Bangkok is related to uh, blockchain technology. And it's basically, uh, if you're looking at decentralized finance and empowering people, having them take control of their own information, which is... Um, predominantly used, marketed and, and sold, for example, medical information, uh, social platforms are, are selling information and there's no benefit to uh, people partaking in that. Now, if individuals have their own blockchain element, and this blockchain element contains their data, medical data, banking data, they can be in control of that data and then respectively decide who that information goes to, for what purpose, when and uh, when it should be monetized. I I think that looking, trying to impose new regulations uh, has for many decades not not been an efficient way of supporting a a socially fair or equitable infrastructure. Instead, empowering the individual by means of, for example, decentralized finance and then scaling that up uh, is probably, in my opinion, the, the best way to go about this. I mean, if you're looking at investments, uh, and and especially, I remember, Renee, you had mentioned that you were interested in knowing how you can have someone take a portion of their 401k, maybe, and invest it, let's say, uh, 10% or however much into a, um, a socially responsible fund. The The problem is, is that the, the Wall Street, the concept of, of mutual funds and their share is, is heavily weighted towards the interests of Wall Street and not, a, not interested in, in socially equitable kinds of formats. So a, a much better way to go would be to, to take uh, those funds and put them into, for example, a uh, Roth IRA or an IRA, individual retirement account, not contribute them to the, uh, to the regular 401k or look for some other kind of uh, tax-deferred, tax-sheltered vehicle from which you can then choose individually on your own uh, specific projects that you believe in to invest in. 
So that's that's what I would suggest there. I, I don't see that Wall Street or um, banks are, are going to be going against their own interest or interest of shareholders specifically uh, for the purpose of supporting a more equitable and social infrastructure. Michael, thank you for that. I want to just take one moment. Um, Delilah's phone is about to die, and she also is well past. I kept her well, well past John as well. So I want to give uh, Delilah a chance to say uh, goodbye. And <laughs> thanks, thanks, Dave, um, and thanks everybody. This has been such an amazing conversation. Um, there's so much more to build on the comments that were just made, but I, I told Dave that I should really go by nine thirty. So. Um, uh, I'll let you. Uh, I'll leave it to you guys to uh, to continue the conversation. And I do have a bit of FOMO, but um, I'll, I'll catch the recording and you know the social media discussion. Delilah, Thank you where for can, coming, Delilah. Where can everybody get a, a a hold of you and touch with you and just? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, Delilah Rothenberg, um, and I'm on Twitter, Delilah nine one seven. Um, and I really look forward to staying in touch with everybody. So much more to talk about. Likewise. It's been awesome. such a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Delilah. Thanks, Delilah. It was great. Great hanging out with you, Delilah. I've got to scoot you. too. Thanks all. Thank you. Bye, Bye, Does the existence of a Del- Delilah 917 imply the existence of a Delilah 212? <laughs> <laughs> Existential question, uh, John. How do you feel about David? I, I uh, sticking around till till uh, ten p.m. Do you feel like you've got it in you, or do you want to bow out as well? Uh, yeah. I mean, like it's only um, ten forty-five in the morning where I am, David. So, so uh, I can as long as other people are still interested. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Perth. Oh, I had no idea. Australia. Okay. Yeah. 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 Whoa. All right, let's aim to go yeah. till 10 p.m. then, if you're if you're good with it, and I feel like I've got the energy for it. So, Elise, that work for you? Yeah, great. This has been such an incredible talk. I've been getting so many DMs about how how epic this is and how much people have learned. So, thank you, 100%. John, David, Shira, everyone. Just uh, one thing I, I wanted to come back to, and I'm sad Astrid had to go because she knows a ton about this, but um, I originally came up to talk about one of the issues that Astrid was bringing up, which is the step-down mechanism. Uh, and I wrote a, an op-ed for Impact Alpha about how, you know, with the pandemic, what we were seeing was the need to have stronger and increase the number of capillaries into our economic system. Uh, and by that, meaning obviously that we're quite good at getting money into, you know, the JP Morgans and the uh, chases of the world, uh, um, but not so good at having that money filter down into communities and places where it's truly needed. And so how do we increase the strength of those capillaries, increase the number of them? And when you dig into this issue a little bit, you come straight up against uh, CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, which are one existing capillary out there to try and channel capital into um, underserved communities all over the country, you know, came up as a result of the uh, Community Reinvestment Act in the 70s. They've grown to, you know, now there are thousands across the United States and most communities, and they provide, you know, capital for all of the great things that I think most of us would like to see in underserved communities, from affordable housing to community centers, to art, to schools, to all of that kind of stuff. Uh, 
Um, and I don't think we've yet quite figured out how to get large scale capital to really interface with these capillaries. Um, and, and I think that there's gonna have to be a ton more innovation in terms of how we take some of their book and some of them are lending out literally billions of dollars in these communities. And you could use some of the tools of Wall Street to bring that into the markets and recycle that capital and double, triple the amount of money that they have access to and the amount of lending they can do. So I just wanted to point to CDFIs as an incredibly important part of the picture around these issues that we're talking about, at least in the U.S. That's great. Thanks so much, Ricardo. I want to make some space in the conversation. Uh, Navin's been waiting very patiently for a while. Navin, do you want to jump in with any thoughts? Yeah, hi. Um, actually, this is a, a great bridge into uh, this great conversation. I'm actually probably a, a bottoms-up kind of guy. I'm a physician by training anesthesiologist, and I left five, uh, actually 15 months ago to um, continue my venture capital firm called Loud Capital. I co-founded it five years ago. And basically, the whole thesis is, well, I'm an Indian American and my co-founder is too. And so when I got in the seat of raising capital from investors and um, some smaller institutional LPs, I really saw the responsibility that I had to start investing responsibly and not just in a impact driven manner, but when I'm looking at underserved communities. And so over the five years we've invested in 45, 47 different companies and about 45% are um, from people of color or women. And so we've been very intentional on in how we find them. And it's not easy, by the way, because the traditional route of um, just saying uh, we have a website or you can find someone and try to get at our office is not enough. And so we've found very creative ways and without going too in depth, I wanna just say, I really have a hopeful outlook on what we're seeing because not only are we investing in really great folks um, that really aren't being looked at, but we really hope to get great success. Um, we're seeing a lot of success and growth. And the more LPs I'm talking to as our funds are getting bigger, we're still a small VC in the Midwest. Um, we're starting to talk to LPs and institutionals and even banks that are now starting to see our traction. They're starting to understand our philosophy. But I will say that there are the banks that still are run by the, you know, the old school, let's say white men who really didn't really can't relate to a person like me or relate to a lot of the people we're investing in. I don't really plan on changing a lot of that, but I'm just trying to find the banks and the LPs that are maybe a little bit more uh, culturally up to date. And there seems to be a little bit more heartstrings there. And so it's just one of those things where I just want to, you know, as we're talking about regulation, as we're talking about top down, we're talking about Wall Street, which you can't change overnight because Wall Street that you know, you're literally looking at numbers, that is your job. And so when you're only looking at numbers and not impact and all these other standards that I would love to implement, um, it's really hard to change overnight. But I think from the ground up, you're gonna start seeing success from really great different diverse companies and then pairing purpose with profit. I see zero sacrifice in having a perfect purpose or impactful company have less profit. I actually look at it as a more sustainable long-term business. So I just wanted to share that. The conversation's been excellent, but um, I just thought, you know, I just wanted to give a little bit of my story and what I've seen on the ground. And I'd love to chime in um, if possible, David. Please. So Navin, I loved what you said. I work for a bank. We can connect offline because obviously I'm not here in official capacity. But one thing that I would implore of everyone on their call, 
on this, on this conversation is if you have a relationship with your bank or bankers, or if you have significant assets at the banks, ask these questions about impact. Even if they give you an answer you don't want to hear, the more people give, bring it up in conversation, the easier it is. Yes. And if LPs are asking for this, that makes my job easier as like someone who's trying to push push these initiatives forward. Um, so 100%. thank you for raising that. Session? Yeah. Can we do a 100%. session on this? Because I think that there are um, a few different groups. And actually, this is how David and I first started chatting <laughs> is he had brought up shareholder activism. And I just kind of wrote to him. I was like, hey, you know, are there some good groups, you know, that are getting involved in this? Because I think that there are a lot of um, different um, ways that that investors can engage. So if you're down for it, I'd love to talk more about that. I'm sure a lot of others would as well. Um, I'll second that. I'll let you continue. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's it. If anyone has questions or anything, I'd like, I'd love to talk, but um, if the shareholders are asking for it, then, um, then they have to listen or, or at least respond. And if that response is uncomfortable, good. Like if they are uncomfortable responding and they're not giving you the answers that you want, then let them know that you will take the capital elsewhere. Well, and, and totally just, so, so look, I think, I think what you're doing is awesome. Nat, and I, there's, there's, and, and there is a lot, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, there were, there's nobody doing that. Now it rise the rest. I mean, there's, there's, there are people who are doing thoughtful things the, the way you've described. I think what was really interesting is what Ashira just said around what she needs to move the needle, which I think brings it back to this isn't an either or. We are so we are not going to solve the problem of wealth and inequality through investing in um, diverse founders. We are going to help the problem of, of wealth and inequality, but we're not going to solve it. The activism. So what Shira just talked about was activism, right? Which is so there's like we have to do all of these things, right? There isn't an answer. Right. We, we, the bottom up stuff that, I mean, that's what we do, right? We do bottom up. So the other thing that we do is we work to build platforms so that um, in industries where there's tons of people who, who start businesses, uh, um, you know, uh, like, so Wonder School is an example of this, like a, like a, a platform that allows uh, a people, an accessible platform for people to start their own businesses when they're a professional or have knowledge and otherwise don't have money. Um, so there are ways to do this from a bottom up approach, but the activism is super important. And that activism has to be political as well. So I think I think we have to do all of these things in order for to really tackle this problem in a way that uh, um, you know really shifts the economy. I mean, I mean, right now what we're doing is sort of stabilizing, but to really shift the economy, we need all of these things to be working at the same time. At least that's my view. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um, I just want to also. I'm just sort of absently. I'm trying to scan here. I want to try to get some other folks into the conversation. Uh, uh, Zeka, looks like you've been waiting patiently. Oh, hey, th thank you, yeah, Navin. It's a pleasure to uh, to follow you. It's, it was great to be on the show earlier where we talked about venture capital and impact. And yeah, my bias is again very very centered around angel investing early stage. Um, as an emerging fund manager, manager aligned with um, the SDGs and impact, et cetera. Um, I definitely love this conversation. I love where it's going. About a year ago, I felt like I was out in the desert starting the podcast positive, um, interviewing VCs and trying to get some answers about what the future of venture capital may look like. I, I happen to think that um, it's it's a positive impact future. <laughs> 
Um, I, I think I, I kind of would like to steer back to some of the mechanics around venture capital. I really liked, Renee, Renee, your thinking in terms of how to move the needle at a local level. I'm also aligned with that. And I think venture capital can, can parlay into, into that type of outcome. There are a lot of people working on projects just like that. Um, but I think more mechanically speaking, kind of the life cycle of venture capital funds is something to me that is um, a little complicated. I was just having a conversation earlier today with a, a very large uh, family office and talking about the mechanics of what it may look like to get out of uh, a venture capital fund. And uh, yeah, I just I kind of wanted to maybe ping the room a little bit and figure out if somebody had some ideas surrounding kind of what does it look like at the end of a fund? Um, you know, in terms of like where uh, an emerging fund could go in terms of like what's next after the fund closes. I have some suggestions there if you'd like me to chime in. Uh, Please. Yeah, so so basically, um, like I mentioned, I, I come from a banking and securities background and currently I'm working heavily in the AI and blockchain industry. And uh, what we've seen mostly is a, is a large shift of assets into, when I'm talking about blockchain, not necessarily Bitcoin or something, but there's all kinds of smart contracts that can be established to specifically adjust to the needs of capital transfer or reallocation of capital. Um, if you're looking to invest or to just gradually take money, uh, move money out of a, of a venture capital fund or allocate it for different purposes, there's a lot of ways to use blockchain smart contracts at a, at a very low cost compared to other kinds of structured vehicles that use uh, a more Wall Street kind of centric uh, or, or SEC regulated approach. Uh, I would be happy to chat one to one about you. Um, oh, about I, I would actually like to open, open it up a little bit on that because I think it's interesting what's happening in Wyoming with the blockchain, I think is fascinating. Um, I'm a little bit concerned back to kind of, you know, the aspects of blockchain, which, um, you know, in terms of security, I mean, if we're talking about security and such, um, there is a, a risk there. But also, also, I'm a little bit concerned about blockchain overall from the standpoint of um, just complexity for individuals to, to use that as an interface, um, just putting that openly. Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah, absolutely. First of all, uh, blockchain elements, um, blockchain is, is more of a, of a, of a tool, I, sh I guess I should say, rather than an, an actual um, solution maybe, or, or more than a, maybe a solution more than a, a product or something like that. So if you're looking at security on an encryption level, the encryption that is uh, unique to each blockchain element is uh, substantially higher than any encryption that you would see on any kind of uh, servers of, of any kind of um, banks, venture capital companies, or anything like that. Michael, I'm just going uh, to jump in. I want to. Michael, I just want to jump in. Michael, I just want to jump in. I'd love to. I think this is an interesting discussion. I just don't want to go down the black the blockchain rabbit hole sure, um, sure. at this okay. point. Yeah, no problem. I, I'm but, sorry to cut yeah, you off. We've just got a few minutes left in the room, and uh, I, I don't mind going a little bit past, but um, thank you. I, I appreciate the, the comments and, and jumping in. Does anybody else have anything else they want to add on yeah, to? I, I'd like to. Please, Franklin. <clears throat> nice to hear from you. Yeah, you know, I, I, I thank you for this conversation and the frankness. And, and often um, I've sat in on conversations where when we deal with elements of risk, capital deployment, intermediation, we, we rarely get into methodology. And I think it's it's great that John – is 
participating being in Perth right now because uh, super funds, the superannuation funds that um, um, were available um, for investment in America, you know, back in 2008, I actually put together a, an investment that was targeted in urban market in America that was fully funded by dollars from Australia's um, superannuation funds by individual investors. And then the notion of CDFIs and community development credit unions, the loss of those over the 80s that was targeted by the government caused us to not have the intermediary capacity. So when we talk about capital formation, we should also talk about intermediate, intermediary capacity that extends from a global um, uh, system where individuals in Australia could direct invest in a tax efficient way to, to uh, facilitate transactions that were private equity based as well as uh, debt structures, you know, in inner city urban America where there aren't that many white males talking about making capital available and then actually creating a, ch a channel for it. So I think if this conversation could lead to, you know, a group where we talk about actual transactions and their methodologies, because individuals out there with capital, you know, if there's $25 million available, we could deploy that in 30 days in the form of 250 mortgages that are $100,000 in urban markets that can't, you know, access 100,000 per house, but the rental market is 1,000 a month. But $100,000 right now at today's rates will cost less than $400 a month. So the income inequality that, that we're experiencing through the lack of access to capital plays out both ways. One, the owner of capital or the group of people understanding who have the IRAs in the local market that access to their capital sometimes is more valuable than the actual return on investment because access to capital moves value. And when we shift value, that's what shifts opportunities. So, you know, John, I appreciate you, Navin. I appreciate what you guys are doing. And I think this conversation was great. I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to know you guys exist. So I'll just sit back now and continue to enjoy. Do you guys, do you guys mind if I, do you guys mind if I add your comment? Sure. Go ahead. Sure. Um, I've got a bad headset on. Do you guys see me okay? Yep. Here you're fine. Okay. Sorry. Um, just a quick introduction. I run Surf Capital. Um, I jumped on this call because I have had a lot of direct. Uh, we I worked closely with Delilah Rothenberg when she was at Pegasus. I'm one of the operating advisors for several of their larger investments. And um, what we do is we operate, just, just kind of give this as background, we operate in about 28 low-income communities around the U.S., almost always in partnership with nonprofits. And I come from a strictly hardcore private equity Wall Street 20 years before I started my company in 2012, Surf Capital. Um, and I found two, I had just kind of an epiphany or an idea, um, which was based on a combination of listening to Navin and Franklin just now. Um, you know, I think what my observation really ties into what they said in terms of the capacity for people to underwrite and deploy capital into these communities. And um, the CDFIs really are the only groups that I'm aware of that on scale have the cultural understanding of the neighborhoods and the real understanding of what's necessary in these neighborhoods, as well as maybe nonprofit organizations that are set up as revitalization. Um, as revitalization places. What I find interesting is that 
we do not have the equivalent of a Fannie Mae um, or Freddie Mac to buy debt from the CDFIs. So if you're a bank anywhere in America, and maybe Shara can speak to this, if you're a bank anywhere in America, you're in the business, or most commercial banks, you're in the business of, of writing mortgages, or mortgage brokers are, and then selling them effectively to Fannie Mae. And then they, there's a whole bond market that Wall Street feeds off of to support those endeavors. Maybe what we need from a regulatory perspective is something like a Fannie Mae that will be buying loans from the CDFIs in order to facilitate a much broader deployment of capital. May I, may I respond? Can I, can I talk about that for a second? Because, and please, Frank. David, is that all right? Yes, please. So, you know, just, just as a shadow, my, my background is in these, this, this space where um, we've developed some instruments, equity equivalent instruments that were, were used to assist credit unions that had low capital reserves. And the offset trade was we would gain some leverage from their um, deposited assets. So there's two points here. The low-income community is not the African-American or the minority community. They're two distinctly different communities. You know, a bank can have a great CRA rating lending in a, a minority community, in a low-income community, and not lend to any people of color. And we, we are seeing that example throughout, um, we call the, uh, the 95. So if you go along the Interstate 95, you have these urban centers that are being repopulated by, you know, um, um, white citizens who are getting in the low-income communities mortgages. So the banks are getting good, better CRA ratings because they're not really looking at the Humda data and saying, okay, what's happening in the quote-unquote ethnic minority community? The CDFIs and credit unions who um, experienced the TARP loans um, are now struggling because of the adjustment of the, the cost of funds. And so they're, they're short on capital. And what we began to do, you know, through our firm was to raise capital. And, and, and I'll give you an exact scenario where the NCUA approved our strategy to provide equity equivalent to a struggling uh, or, or low capital reserve uh, federal chartered credit unions. And in exchange, we were able to get a four to one or an eight to one leverage with deposit assets to deploy mortgages, to deploy consumer products. Um, the tremendous resistance in management because of the cultural shift between the difference between a low-income community and an ethnic community within the same city is something that we have to overcome. So in terms of overcoming it, the direct investment model is still one aspect of the initial institutionalization of capital because an individual can be first money in into a pool, a securitized pool that's supported, or they can be first money in to a locally aggregated source of capital. When you get the locally aggregated source of capital and the securitized pool working together, we, we then look at the CRA model that has never been enforced in this country. And, you know, we could see it in the deployment of PPP loans and everything else. So if we were to actually get the moral alignment, which is the, the, in the commitment, the real commitment to deploy capital through you know, the different layers of our society and have access capital, you know, where self-directed individuals, again, can create secure, securitized local pools that will function as a correspondent lender 
buying the paper from the CDFI or the credit union. But but now you've created access to persons like myself who had to go to Australia to access self-directed dollars from other individuals that they were willing to put up so that we can do real estate you know, transactions in the very same community that has you know, tremendous CRA dollars available, CDFIs functioning, but there's, there is that iniquity part of inequality that we never talk about. It's that person's obstinate desire not to allow another person to have access to capital because of whom they are. So if we address that by creating another channel, then that at least empowers the individual to gain access from the global market where, you know, it's no longer a question of Wall Street to Main Street. It's Wall Street to the individual that could self-direct, aggregate capital on a local level and institutionally function within their own community based on dollars they have that can be self-directed or as in the situation, uh, John's in Australia right now. And thank God for Australians because they financed a tremendous amount of urban real estate that should have been financed by the institutions and, you know, in those markets that had the obstinate desire to target the minority status, they'll lend to the low income status because that's the young white person moving into the urban market, getting an FHA mortgage from an institution that will not lend to the person who's in that community who's paying three times what the principal interest payment would be in the form of rent. So if you're paying $1,200 a month in rent for what would be a $400 a month principal interest payment, that's inequality at its first slap in the face. So can I, can I, Frank, I don't want to follow up by saying I, I have a BlackBerry. And as a result, this was going to be my only ever clubhouse moment. I would get an iPhone uh, if we could organize a conversation, Franklin, <laughs> where we just listen to you for a long period of time, talk about these things um, uh, maybe with enough time that you can explain some of it in more detail, because I, I, like, I had trouble following some of what you said, but like, man, I like, so, so anyway, David, I don't know, at least if anyone can organize that, please. Yeah. Franklin, I, I would like would love to offline. Um, just, yeah. are you linked David, to your to say... Twitter? <laughs> I'd love to figure out how to get in touch with you, Franklin. Cause if you're, if you're interested, oh, I'm I'd love to yeah, have that I'm, conversation. I'm on LinkedIn. Franklin D. Red on LinkedIn, Embassy Capital Group's my company. Okay. And um, and, and John, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a former BlackBerry guy, too, who's been forced into an iPhone, and I still can remember how to use the BlackBerry 9600 International from 12 years ago. <laughs> a classic, it to my, A classic. It did, something, it did something to my brain, so I'm fighting to use this other tech. So I, mean, I, I just think this is a great group, so I, I'm appreciative to be here, and I certainly will participate Um you know, in any way that would be productive. Yeah. So I, I want to just say that I, I moderate a group uh, at 5 p.m. on Mondays on innovations and impact investment. And we actually today just scheduled a conversation in two Mondays. So what is that, the 28th or so uh, on uh, CDFIs? And we have Amir Kirkwood, who uh, is uh, kind of the person, one of the people that manages the money for OFN, the Opportunities mm-hmm. Finance Network, which is the yeah. a network of about I think 400, 500 CDFIs across the country. So, 
uh, I think we're going to have that conversation and a lot of those conversations, John, and, and there. And Kathy Kim, who works with the credit union as well, inclusive. Um, so I think these are really interesting capillary networks uh, for getting capital into underserved communities. And in fact, we were talking today all about uh, exactly what you were mentioning, Franklin, how to how to create the, the sort of backstop, whether it's, you know, um, is it mortgage-backed securities? Is it an ETF? What What is the structure for getting much more capital and recycling some of the capital that, that they already have out in the community through these CDFIs? So it's it's happening. There's a bunch of people working on stuff like that. So it doesn't have to be the superannuation funds from Australia doing it, giving that money. Ricardo, that's amazing. Could you repeat for us the time and maybe the club that's doing that? We'd love to support and, and listen in. Well, I'm currently clubless, so uh, if you want to do it through here, I'm ha- more than happy to do it through here. Um, absolutely, uh, yeah. Let's um, let's chat. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's uh, it's called Innovations and in Impact Investing, and it'll be 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern uh, on Monday. I think it's the 28th, but let me check the calendar. It's two, yeah, a week a week from Monday, so 29th, I guess. Oh, amazing. I'll DM you. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I just want to take a moment Fantastic. and let uh, John, um, he has to hop. We've kept him way past. Uh, I'll let remind everybody that I that we are recording and I'll share this through the Impact Investing podcast. This has been just such an incredible conversation. Delilah and John, um, the, you know, a lot of the, and Astrid and everybody who's contributed to the conversation. I think we've brought up some like really great examples of how Wealth inequality happens that we're not talking enough about and, and was illustrated by just some really poignant examples from John and now Franklin of like how it's happening in real communities to real people. And it's really laying bare, as I said earlier, the like how broken our system is in a way that we can all understand when you see it in, in real terms happening to real people like that. It's just I think this is just such a valuable conversation. And of course, that doesn't fix the problem, as John was saying. And I think we've alluded to throughout here. There's just so many there's not one solution to this problem. We need all the tools and, and attack it at all fronts. Um, so I, I think it's helpful for sort of, um, you know, plumbing the, the, the depths of this problem and exposing it. Um, John, I'll let you jump in here. Yeah. Listen, thanks, David. This, this has been really fun. Uh, um, some, you know, some wonderful people to listen to. I, I'm really glad I stayed and, and got to hear uh, Franklin talk. You know, and I, I know I tend to be sometimes the buzzkill on, on some of these conversations with my uh, skepticism on, on the ability of impact. I mean, we, we're impact investors uh, on these, on the ability of impact investment to actually change things, um, at any scale. Um, and, you know, I think, um, you know, there are wonderful things going on. It's a lot of them has been mentioned on this call. Um, you know, I, I think there's so many elements of inequality that we haven't even like, touched on um you know like, like the things that happen that, that that we don't appreciate that happen under under the radar um uh you know that that we all need to engage in right like if we care about wealth inequality we need to engage you know, in all elements of it um uh you know which means the activism that Shira was talking about to you know and and means the the regulatory side and um uh you know i know i i know i, I tend to drone on about that but you know, uh, um, 
uh, it's just it's what it's how we think about things for what it's worth at at you know at social capital partners and and um you know the 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 we 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 prevent ourselves from congratulating ourselves even when we do like a Taylor guitars deal uh, because we know that it's such a small thing versus the bigger problem but there there's a lot of energy so much energy so much more than there was in in these conversations and if we can direct it in all of the ways we need to and remind ourselves that even though we are doing good work and even though we're happy with the things that we've done and, and maybe we've even maximized the way that we can contribute, there's the bigger questions um, that need our political support um, uh, in, in the democracies of Australia and Canada and uh, uh, you know, where I'm from and in the US uh, um, and we just can't ignore that. So, um, so thank you for this, David. Uh, um, it has been uh, wonderful and you know, I look forward to uh, Franklin's version of this uh, where I will be sitting in the audience uh, um, uh, wrapped. Um, so uh, uh, thank you everyone uh, again for, for allowing me to talk as much as I have in the last little while. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate your time. We'll keep the room going thank just you, to, John. sorry, at least I Cut you off as oh, you're no, saying goodbye. Just, just a little, just a little bye bye. <laughs> it um, was amazing, really, David. I mean, this has been just incredible, and I think it's spurred a lot of thought. And I know that a lot of us will be keeping in touch about these um, these issues and and taking real action behind it. So, thank you. 100. percent I know you've also stayed at least past you when you you wanted to. I, I wanted to just give a, a moment for Lena, uh, Miguel, uh, and Denim who um, haven't had a chance to to join the conversation before we wrap up. If you wanted to um, jump in in that order, uh, Lena, maybe just open the floor to you. Hi, hi. Thank you. Um, okay, I am more nervous than I'm, I've ever been on a clubhouse stage, um, especially following Franklin. Um, but I wanted to actually take back on, on what he was talking about a little bit. Um, I am not a numbers person. I'm not a banker. I'm not, I don't know anything really about it. Um, but, um, I am very passionate about a need for, um, middle income housing, median income housing, market rate housing sort of throughout the country. Um, but that's not what I, I jumped on here to, to ask about. What I specifically came on to ask about was, um, why, why are we not, or maybe the, maybe there is, this is happening, but social impact funds, um, maybe even just temporarily supporting, um, local restaurants that have been forced to go under through the pandemic and, I say this ties into what Franklin was talking about because obviously housing is so important, but um, restaurants are also, you know, they're one of the major small business, you know, subsectors or categories, what have you. They're also the reason that a lot of times a neighborhood comes alive. They are, from a marketing standpoint, the key selling point, you know, whether it's a convention center trying to get huge groups in or whether it's a neighborhood trying to, you know, increase its property values by saying, oh, we have lots of amenities around here. And for my entire career, I've seen restaurateurs and chefs and whatnot sort of dangled as like the story hook um, to get anybody to come to any place. And then the pandemic happened and they were all just thrown out like to dry. Like, And I haven't seen I know there's no real government effort to help them, um, but I think 
from an impact investment standpoint, it sort of makes a lot of sense because they're the end point for, for all the farming, you know, for some of the energy. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to ask that and find out if you know a little bit more about what's happening. Because I work with a lot of restaurant uh, people and they just are in despair. Lena, thanks uh, a lot for that that question. Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I'm not familiar with uh, as familiar with the U.S. context, so I'll sort of defer to anybody else in the room who wants to to jump in on that. But I, I certainly know that um, you know that's a, a big problem in in the Canadian context as well, and I think globally, I'm sure. Um, John, it's too bad that John had to had to leave. He was actually you know, I quite involved um, with. Sorry, if I can, I'll just finish quickly and and then yeah. let you jump in here. John was quite involved with um, uh, some kind of advocacy, uh, advocacy, and um, kind of public uh, like lobbying the government to try to provide more support to small businesses in general. And restaurants were were a big part of that. There was an initiative called Save Small Business.ca, and and uh, you know did a lot of good, but. Um, not enough, <laughs> Franklin. Yeah, I, I, you know, this is something that we're seeing in the school system, the, the impact in the school dis- systems in, Buff- in um, North America, right? So the income shifted from casual leisure dining to packaged meals. And the packaged meals industry, when we look at Title I funding in America, you know, the National School Lunch Program, Provides breakfast, lunch, snack, dinner. If local restaurants got some of that business, that would sustain their income. Uh, the packaged meals that are now subsidized by health insurance. So just like, you know, any industry that's in um, transition, you know, the, the restaurant industry is one that, you know, if we think of restaurants as a food, as a meals factory, and we look at the consumption um, that's, that's subsidized for meals, you know, the the actual um, fact that the in a hybrid education scenario where the students aren't going to school, the school districts still have access to the same money. So those dollars should be shifted in a way that we're deploying them through the meal manufacturing capacity of local restaurants. So we, 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 we do have, I think, an opportunity to look at how the um, uh, restaurants can gain share in that market, at least on a local level, um, and, and, you know, to be able to finance that, tra- you know, that transition because they may need to scale up their equipment or they, or they might just need to um, have working capital dollars to shift the, the way labor functions. But, you know, restaurants, and I would hate to make a, 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 a blanket statement, but the majority of the time that their kitchens are operating is less than 50% of the time they're available. So if, if the restaurant is down for 12 hours, they could have a, a, a meals packaging type scenario that's funding the lo- that's supplying the local school or you know, the um, community that's now growing with these packaged meals. You know, that shift is, is helping stabilize the income of restaurants that, that make that kind of transition. I think this COVID experience is allowing us to see that we need to um, sort of watch how our income has been repositioned because on the other side of COVID, you know, the income streams are going to be in, um, in, you know, in different places than they were, you know, a year ago. Anybody else want to jump in on that? Oh, so 
sorry. Please go ahead, Lena. Okay, I wanted. Okay, I wanted to respond to that. Um, so there was a there was some sort of business improvement district of Franklin that you might know about um, in Miami in Overtown, and they were trying to get off the ground like a year ago, and they were also a, a historic and cultural um, district, and they were one of the only designated districts for African-American history and their, their shining beacon headlight headline was um, the, the famous chef who started Red Rooster in Harlem. He was going to open a restaurant and that was what they were sort of going out on, you know, um, anyway, pandemic happened. He never did it. He tried, didn't happen. Um, and as far as I know, like the whole effort is sort of now, on pause but i guess that's what i'm talking about so living in miami you know there's there's restaurants that are up and running at 100 percent, and it's almost an inside joke like there are money laundering operations for you know some billionaire out of turkey or whatever right yeah. um it's kind of known in miami that that's just something that people do for fun like invest in a restaurant so i'm just wondering why the the funds that are in this room that are concerned with social impact aren't looking toward projects like Overtown. Can can I make a quick comment on that? And I'll, yeah, please. Really, if if we were to take advantage of the Opportunity Zone program, we're talking about an embedded capital gain and a reduction of basis for capital gain and a tax free exit. So when you look at the, the communities that are minority communities across the country and how Opportunity Zone investing is working, when you have such a huge tax incentive for capital, I mean, in any gain from any category can be deployed for investing in an overtown. And what, what we see in a community like that, there's a need for housing, there's a need for infrastructure improvement, there's, there's a broad range of needs that if you sit a restaurant in there, you know, you, you, you're really making it to, to have to do the heavy lift. But, you know, you, 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 the rare opportunity, I think the Overtown area is in an opportunity zone. You know, within most African-American communities or, or communities of color, you know, opportunity zones exist. And if, if funds or ultra-high net worth individuals would look at the tax benefit, and then you have a population of people who have the highest discretionary spend on a per capita basis because they're paying the highest rate, their premium on everything. So there's, there's very little wealth generation opportunity because they're hyper income based consumers. So if you're going to make money, you go into the African American community and you sell for you, you, literally the Food available is supplied by other retail. So you have stores in the neighborhood going to outside the area, retailers buying the food, bringing it back to their store, selling it at a premium, and the community is consuming that. So there is potential for profitability if we take the abuse out of it. So if we use the tools available equitably, an opportunity zone scenario is, is probably the best incentive we could provide to compete with um, – you know, the groups that have, you know, the money that they're trying to just move around. So I would think um, housing, an integrated housing strategy, an integrated, you know, um, 
a food distribution strategy. You know, we're talking about structured income and based on consumption and, you know, in a market where there is some subsidy, you know, to, um, you know, to take it back to the notion of the restaurants, a restaurant prepares a meal, puts it in a cooler. It's now reimbursed. It's, it's capable to be purchased with, you know, the food stamps. So Walmart, if you look at their revenue basis, Walmart is getting a lot of money from food stamps. You don't see Walmart in the urban markets. Target is getting a lot of money from food stamps because now they have grocery stores and targets across the country. You don't see targets in urban markets. So there is a space for, you know, food and clothing in those markets. That's opportunity. That's opportunity. They're subsidized by these tax enhanced programs that if we would, you know, responsibly seek sustainability, which makes us good corporate citizens over the long run. So, you know, Overtown is just an example of, you know, possibility not becoming probable because we didn't spend the time thinking about it because it's it's there. It's it's there. That's uh, I really appreciate that, Franklin. All right. Well, with that, um, why don't we why don't we wind down here? I, I again, I want to thank Elise so much for um, hosting this conversation and allowing us to have it in this amazing club. Uh, if you're not already following the club, please uh, click on the little greenhouse at the top of the screen next to Impact Investment Club and follow it. Elise holds so many great thank conversations <laughs> with so many great people. Um, no, it was we were the lucky ones, really. Um, you've been so generous with your time and you brought on just such incredible guests. And this um, this talk has been really um, educational for me and inspiring. So thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.